Hi, everybody, and welcome to Ornate Stairwells, a movie podcast. I'm Autumn. I'm joined, as always, by Neve. Hi, I'm Neve. We're both in the best of moods right now. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sleepy. (laughs) We're Um, both depressed. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, It's chill. Tell me about Zeta Gundam. I was going to do the the little thing of, I watched all of Zeta Gundam in nine days. Yeah. Uh, the dub while working. Um, I enjoyed it. One is watching all of Zeta Gundam as a dub while you're also doing work. Uh, is maybe not the best way to watch Zeta no, Gundam. No, that show is like, like pretty incomprehensible. Yeah, like uh, the original series worked pretty well that way. You know, I've got, I I have dual monitors at work, and so I've got, like, my actual work on there, and I have one of them kind of lifted up higher so that, like, my my laptop fits underneath it, and so then I, I essentially have three screens where, like, right underneath one of the screens that I use the most often for work is a laptop screen that's just, like, the whatever show I'm watching or a movie or something, and so I can, like, see a lot of it, I can sort of glance down and get a little bit more of the visuals. Harder to read subtitles, but, like... That's why a lot of it is dubs and stuff. Um, And so for the original one, there's a lot of like, like there's some interesting stuff that happens later on. There's like some development, but it's like a a slower paced show Mm -hmm. with like a very, like there's a fight every week. Yeah. You know? And just like the fight, like there's some stuff in there that you might get of like, oh, this person died this week or whatever, or, oh, they're busting out this new maneuver or whatever. Like, there's still some interesting content in there, but none of it is like where Zeta Gundam is at, where there's still a lot of fights. Yeah. But also there's like, I I have also been watching slowly because I I don't even think there is a dub of Turn A, but if there is, I wouldn't want to watch it because I I really want to give like attention to Turn A because I know people love Turn A. Um, especially people whose taste in Gundam I trust, i.e. like Great Gundam Project. But anyway, um, I've been watching through Turn A, and a thing that Turn A does is that like there's so much of the world that it does not reveal to you, and that it reveals to you very slowly. But it works in Turn A because your perspective is primarily Earthers. The main character is from the moon. Um, he's quote unquote moon race is, you know, the term for, and so he is like, has more knowledge than you as the audience has Mm -hmm. you as the audience mostly have this, the amount of knowledge that like the average person on earth has not necessarily like Lord Gwyn, who's been conniving and, and has been like seemingly in negotiations for years with the moon. Um, like there are, there are other characters who have knowledge, but you kind of, some of it makes sense because most of what you know, like you can either intuit or gets explained early on, but purely from this perspective of, I'm like, I am a common person on earth who until this point probably didn't even know people were on the moon. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Uh, or had like a very basic idea of it, but like I never met someone from the moon. Uh, I don't know what culture is like on the moon. Maybe I like know that there are stories that people are on the moon. That's maybe the extent of it, you know? So it introduces you to that stuff, but then you start getting all of this like weird, like, oh, there's a ton of shit happening on the moon that is like very slowly getting revealed to you. So much of it works though, because it's just like, 
you get this sense of like, oh, there's so much shit happening right now, but you're like so easily situated as like a, a normal person in this where you're kind of being brought along and your, your, uh, like lack of knowledge of everything that's happening in the world right now is still like situated as like a, a perspective of other people in the show. Zeta Gundam has a bunch of like shit that has happened in the world. Yeah. From like when it's happening, like between the one year war, the original uh-huh. series, and then what's happening now, a bunch of shit happened. That no one will that ever tell you about. A lot of people in the show, a lot of the characters that you're spending time with are aware of, but you are not. Yes. Will be aware of for episodes and episodes and episodes before they finally reveal a little bit of it to you. Yeah. Um, and in such a quick fire pace that you might not pick up on it. Yes. Uh, and so it's one where like, I think that I like the original series more just like as a show, I think it was a better show. Like the stuff that I was excited about Zeta Gundam feels like what I expected from Gundam, you know? This is, like, what I expect Gundam to be, which is just, like, there's a bunch of, like, weird world building and politicking, and there's a shit ton of characters, and there's a bunch of different mechs. Um, The main crew has, like, goes through multiple upgrades and changes of mechs, and you get Mm -hmm. new mechs. Um, This is all the stuff that I expect is, like, this is what Gundam is. Like, before I watched any Gundam, I was like, this is what Gundam is. I mean, I guess... I had watched like wing and stuff. That's different. Yeah. But like before I'd like really started thinking about Gundam as a thing and not just like, Oh, something that what I watched on Toonami or whatever. Like this is what Zeta is what I thought of. Right. Um, and I knew that like the animation was different in the old one. And I was kind of surprised at the, the sudden shift. Mm-hmm. Right. I expected like more of a gradual change where it was just like, no, like eighties anime is fucking here. Yeah. Uh, Believe in a sign of Zeta. Yes. Um, But yeah, and so some of it is like, this just didn't wow me in the same way that the original did, where I'm like, the original just feels like it is doing so much with so little. Um, It has like a, a, it seems like a comparatively much smaller budget. Um, It is like working within like the constraints of like a, a far more simplistic, like, genre and like uh you know storytelling format yeah uh and then doing really incredible things with that and with like how low the budget is being able to then push that in weird and like extremely interesting and evocative ways whereas everything that i see and maybe this is just that at the time zeta gundam would have felt revelatory but it just became so influential on like 80s anime and honestly even 90s anime um that now I'm watching it and I'm just like, yeah, this is just like how people do this shit. Yeah. You know? Um, but yeah, so like my caveat in my my judgment of it, though, is just like, despite the fact that I think I like the original more, this is the one that I'm more like, man, I should like go back and rewatch that at some at some yeah. point just to like, now that I, I know a little bit more of the shape of the thing, yeah, do it in a way where I can 
pay attention. Um, but also I just want to like keep my trajectory and not go back and do it again. I think again. that's the better, I think that's the better <clears throat> choice. Um, but for, for double Zeta, there's no, there's no dubs. Yeah. So. There's no dub. So I'm just going to have to start alternating turn a and double Zeta when I have my like X. Cause most of the time when I watch subbed anime, like for ghost divers, I do it while I'm biking during mm-hmm. my, my lunch breaks. Um, so it's just going to like fall into that slot. And I, I'm probably going to be hitting double Zeta more often than turn a, even though I'm positive that I'm probably going to like turn a more, um, mostly because I just want to get through Shar's counterattack before, uh, we get to IBO on ghost divers, which is next year. You gotta, um, I mean, I, I know you've heard this. It's okay. M will tell you that the first 10 episodes of double Zeta are bad. Um, and M will say that it gets good with Moon Moon. I'm going to tell you that the first, I want to say, 15 to 17 episodes of Double Zeta are bad. There's a moment when a character shows up and the show becomes good. And from that moment to the end, I think it is one of the best television shows ever made. However, you do just have to slog through like 17 really bad episodes of anime to get there. I've watched and a lot of bad anime, so I think it'll be fine. But the other thing about it is that I like Zeta Gundam a lot, a lot. There are probably seventeen bad episodes of Zeta Gundam of the fifty episode run. It's just that like they don't front load the bad stuff the way that Double Zeta does. I think Double Zeta, the- I think Double Zeta has a bad reputation because the seventeen really bad episodes are all at the start. Yeah. Whereas whereas Zeta Gundam is like, ooh, episode three is a real stinker. <laughs> and then episode yeah. seven or whatever, you know. Um, I will say that, that Zeta Gundam, like, there are some episodes that are fun or interesting. But, you, like, you get to the back half and then it's just like, oh, this show has, like, arrived. Like, this is what the show is. Uh-huh. I wish it would have been this the whole time. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like... I think there's value in getting to know like Camille and stuff before you throw in a bunch of the old cast. Yeah. Um, but there's a certain amount of like slow drip of that stuff where I kind of wish that they at least gave you other minor characters earlier. So much of Zeta Gundam is about living in the aftermath of the what living in the aftermath of the choices the original cast made that makes some of that, like, drip-feeding in of the original cast. Some of it doesn't work, I think, because it's, like... It doesn't... It... The fact that it is all about, like, living in the aftermath of the one-year war does not become apparent until you introduce certain things, you know? Yeah. And then you, like, look at it, and you're like, oh, that's what that was... Okay. You know? Yeah. Um, anyway, I liked Amaro a lot in the first series. Um, he's my special boy. Yeah. He was a special boy. He was trying really hard. Um, you know, he was my bestie in high school. Mm -hmm. Uh, then we went away to college, like a few years passed. I was going back home and visiting friends and I was like, Oh, I'm going to go catch up with my bestie Amaro. And now he's like really into crypto and also has been like, 
getting money from crypto, but in a, a way that I'm like, not sure if that money's entirely real, but has spent a bunch of it on just really old cars. Yeah. And just keeps talking to me about his old cars. And I'm like, what the fuck, dude? You used to be like chilling cool. <laughs> <laughs> and I think about it and I'm like, this is actually not that different from the guy that I knew in, in high school. The thing is that he didn't change other than he got like access to money and didn't do anything about it. Yeah. <laughs> That's Amaro to me. Yeah. In Zeta. Whereas Camille, I love Camille with my whole heart. Right now, Camille's my favorite of the Gundam. I've only got two of them, uh-huh. but uh, is my favorite. I like him more. At the end, I still liked him more than, than Amaro, I think, at the end of the original. I... I have often made my display he's, name on Twitter. They, them, Camille, be done. He, he's a, he's a little shit, but in a way that like, I've seen what what's happened to that kid. Yeah, he gets like thrust into being a pilot for a war, and then whenever he has feelings, which this is just a, a deeply empathic boy, he just gets like slapped and told to to go out there again. Yeah, yeah. I love him. I anyway, love <laughs> anyway, uh, Anno invented nothing. <laughs> But Camille is so much more appealing than Shinji. Because he is a deeply empathic boy. Yeah. Oh, no, wait. My favorite my favorite Gundam boy. I do have a third one uh, in this watch, which is that I am watching turn A. Uh, Laron is fucking incredible. Okay. I love Laron. Uh, Laron's the best Gundam boy. Um, he is also deeply, uh, empathic and, uh, empathetic as well, uh, to everyone around him. And instead of like that really showing up in like episode 30, where, uh, at that point, like everything is just so fucked that he's just like, uh, having very deep feelings about the people around him, but then watches them die or like the, the person just runs away and it just like ends in a fight or just like yelling or whatever uh instead laron's like episode fucking seven or eight or something being like i'm i feel deep empathy and i'm gonna have a conversation with someone and be like hey it was kind of shitty how you're like really racist against me now that you found out that i'm moon race but also like a bunch of people from the moon did kill your dad and like you know we, we should like work through this but like fair like you you got it's like valid that you're really frustrated and pissed off about this. And then you just get to talk about it. It's fucking great. Turn A is great. <laughs> you should be watching Turn A. No, I will not you do that. You really should. I will not do that. We were, we were going to watch it at some point, and then you just were never watching it. And you never wanted to watch it with me. I just... And so now I'm just watching it on my own. It's fucking great. I believe you. I'm sure someday I will watch it. I don't... There's something... Like, the last handful of times I've tried to watch anime, it just doesn't hit my brain right, you know? I'm just not in the right headspace for it, and I don't really... I could probably try to pick that apart, but I don't really want to do that right now. But what if you're watching it, and there's an episode about the material realities of farmers during uh, a colonial settling of their land? I guess I'd just rather watch a movie about that is the thing. Fair. It's it's like a purely like medium genre thing, you know, of yeah. like I just am more into movies lately and I think I could probably like tell you what it is, but I don't really care to do that. You know? Yeah. 
what if I told you that I'm on like episode 10 or 12 or something and there's only been like three fights and I I don't think Laurent's killed a single person yet. Well, that's fucking weird. Tell me about Knives Out. Anyway, um, I watched Knives Out. Uh, this is partially because uh, Blockbuster is over on Abnormal Mapping. We're, they were going to do it. Uh, I never watched it at the time because uh, it sounded kind of interesting. And then everybody talked it to fucking death. Yeah. Um, and then I was like, mm, I'm not going to go see, a, see it in theaters right now because I, I have a newborn. Mm. Um, and then the moment just kind of passed me. And by then I thought, ah, I've heard like who the killer, quote unquote, is. I think I'd heard the whole plot, but I stopped at the first reveal. That's like where my brain got locked <laughs> in is the killer. There, there are multiple twists in this. Yeah. <clears throat> but anyway, um, I was like, yeah, I might as well watch it since Blockbusters is going to do it. It did sound fun. And it sounded fun in the exact way that Emily would love um, and so I was like, Emily, do you want to watch this with me? She had a hoot. Like, she had a blast. We, it was a hoot. We loved it. Yeah. Um, that movie's just a good time. Yeah. It's unfortunate. How to say this? So much of the conversation around the movie, and so much of the conversation that the movie is purposefully trying to generate is about the politics. Um, And that's like the... Most, like, nothing... That's not what the the movie is... The movie is a fun movie. Yeah. I don't really care about the politics. I find them a little asinine, but they don't really take away from my enjoyment because the thing that I'm here for is, like, the locked room murder mystery, and I found that part very fun. Yeah. You know? The part that's, like, depressing to me about it... So the part that's really fun about it is that you watch it and you're like... Oh damn! This is like the blockbusters that I've been missing. This is like the the movies that you just go see in the theater uh-huh. that I've just been deeply missing in the MCUification of fucking everything. Yeah, they made a a drama for adults. Yeah, that's like funny and has like some mystery, and despite being over two hours, is really well paced, and so like you don't feel the length of it. We got um, a bunch of good like. People who have, like, one foot in character acting and one foot in, like, leading roles, you know? Yeah. And we kind of, like, got together an ensemble cast, but not in a way where, like, these people need to be really developed up because we're going to care about, like, developing them into their own franchises. Uh, They're just allowed to, like, be a character in a movie. Uh Uh-huh. And, like, maybe there'll be a sequel, but it's probably not going to include most of these people. Um, It's just, like what I wish was coming out of Hollywood more often. Uh, and all of that stuff is great and fun and being like, Oh, maybe there is hope. And then I remember that basically this was made because Ryan Johnson got a bunch of Disney money and then decided to make the thing he wanted to make. And I was yeah. like, Oh, so it is all still just like, you have to appease Disney enough to be able to do this. Yes. Like and- even this can only exist because you get a bunch of money from Disney and then decide what you're going to do is do this. And because this is successful, there are two more sequels to this coming. You know? Yeah. Like, even even this thing that we have been saying over and over that we want more of cannot escape all of these, all this shit's getting sequelized. You yeah. Know? But if, this, if these sequels play out like older Hollywood sequels where it's like, yeah, we got, we got the guy. Uh-huh. 
with his bad southern accent back you know <laughs> uh we have like a handful of characters and it's just another mystery or it's just a different script that we worked to be about this character again did you i don't that would be fucking that's fine you've probably seen this some some random person tweeted they should make like six more Benoit Blanc movies and he should have a different silly accent in each one of them yeah and then Ryan Johnson like quote tweeting it with like no joke that I've pitched that (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) that just Daniel Craig shows up with a different silly accent uh the other oh what's the name of the the actor who's the the like uh be set upon uh local police officer oh I have no idea I, um, I I think I saw this movie like December 2019. So I'm trying to remember the actor's name. Um. Oh, they're they're giving me the fucking new one. I don't <laughs> want the fucking new one. Um. Sorry, this one I'm fairly certain is not happening. Um, Lakeith Stanfield. Oh yeah, um, it would. I forget who I first saw say this, but it would just be incredible to both have uh, Benoit LeBlanc or whatever, um, or Benoit Blanc, uh, have him just have a different accent every time, but then also be in different locations, but the local police officer is always played by like <laughs> That would be really good. <laughs> that would be really good. <laughs> With like, like no commentary on it, like different name for the the character or whatever. Like a nurse joy all... situation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> or an officer Jenny, really. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, that would be great. That would be really would fucking good. <laughs> uh, movies need to be stupider, but in a different way than they are currently stupid. The Knives Out, for all its flaws is profoundly stupid in the way that I want movies to be stupid. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, So anyway, I I highly recommend it. Uh, If people just want a fun time, don't expect anything from its politics. Uh, It's a Hollywood movie. Yeah. Have you seen Hollywood movies? Don't expect anything from its politics. Uh, But it's a fun time. And go listen to Blockbusters, which is $5. I don't know what I'm having. I've not. I actually haven't heard the new blockbusters yet, so I should get around to that. That's good. I'll probably have heard it by the time this episode goes out. I just haven't heard it as the time we record it. Um. <laughs> next, we've got three movies for me, listeners. I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna keep it real with you. Uh, we've ordered these movies in the spreadsheet in the order of how much I was paying attention to them. So we start with Alien, a movie I've seen. I don't know how many times. Yeah. It's the best movie ever made. I think the way that you uh, described it to me at the time was that uh, Nora and Molly watched Alien and you played video games in the corner. <laughs> not, not in the corner. Like, okay, TV's there. TV is the wall. Yeah, people can people <laughs> people can see my closet and how you're gesturing at we're, parts of it. Okay. We're sitting in Nia's closet. We're we're facing the wall. Yeah. The wall we are facing is the TV. I'm like between Molly and Nora. I am face on with the TV. I'm not like in the corner. I, like like so, like when when Nora watched Dune, I was off in the corner. 
Like I, I looked up sometimes and said, like, "That looks dumb." Yeah, if you're, if you're, oh, look, sorry, noon. If you're sitting, you know, looking at the TV, and in this scenario, noon is on the TV. I'm way over there. Then over to the left, you're gesturing, which is the door out of my closet from where we're sitting. Yeah. But like further away than this door, it'd be yeah. like, oh, in my actual bedroom. Right. Um, sorry, I bumped the the ironing board that I use as a desk in here. Yeah. Um that you're you're over in a love seat over there. Yeah. Yeah. This one, I was right there. I could have been watching Alien. I was playing video games. Okay. <laughs> and a, a, occasionally looking up at the screen and being like, yeah, Alien's happening. This is my favorite movie. Um I mean, it's no Aliens. Shut I the fuck <laughs> up. <laughs> I don't even believe that. But... <laughs> um See, I, 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 I didn't. I, I almost didn't even log it in my letterbox. I think I ultimately did, but I almost didn't even log it in the letterbox because I didn't really watch it. Yeah. Oh, Mom, can I? Can I do mine that I logged but barely watched? Oh yeah, sure. Uh, I got a dental crown put in yesterday. Mm-hmm. Uh, while that was happening, I watched like half of Clear and Present Danger, but I was getting dental work done, so I, I didn't really watch it. I believe Molly's thoughts on Alien were, um, I like all the other movies we've watched where things happen more, I believe is what she said. Yeah. (laughs) There's a lot of Alien where nothing's happening, and I think that's exquisite. It's great. It's fantastic. (laughs) But I do understand the criticism of, I do wish things were happening more often. Um... My my one review of Clear and Present Danger is so when they they first did the like actual work to you know set up the whole crown thing so the way they do it is they like remove a bunch of material uh, do a little scan that gets sent to some whoever prints like the actual permanent crown and for a while you wear a temporary one until the permanent one comes in and then they deliver that and they put that one in your mouth um, during the actual procedure of it so my dentist just hands me like the remote to the Roku and I just have to pick something in the like short amount of time when the, the, uh, the topical before they even like do the shot sets in. Um, and so the first time I just saw Seinfeld right away and I was like, Oh, I'll watch Seinfeld. Um, which is fine. This time I was like, I want to watch a movie. I picked clear and present danger. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen that one before. But uh, during the scenes where, like, war stuff is happening, it's really fucking loud. And then it cuts to Harrison Ford as the president in the Oval Office, and it's really quiet. And that's really bad in a dentist office. Yeah. <laughs> so that's my, yeah. my, my review is uh, sometimes TV's just nice and even, sound-wise. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> um, so, Stairs and Alien, I'm going to say an F. I don't... I don't recall there being any stairs in Alien from the other times where I've paid attention to that movie. Yeah, I'm trying to... Because you get so much of the, like, halls and shit in the the ship, but, like... There's maybe this ladders. Was, this was the first time... There ladders? There's ladders. There's, there's definitely ladders. ladders. There's definitely ladders. Yeah. This was the first time... I was not really aware of this. People talk about uh, Giger. Geiger? Giger. I don't know. Whatever working on that movie a ton. Um, when we were recording Coffee and Comic Books, Rick told me something that I didn't... I think I knew, but didn't really register before. 
And so watching it this time, knowing that was pretty interesting that Giger does the designs for all of the alien stuff, the xenomorph and the, um, <clears throat> you know, the space jockey and all that. But Mobius does all the design for the Nostromo and the like greebly little like ship they've got there. Um, and I just thought that was really interesting. I think that like those are like, Two wildly different aesthetics um, that have just come to dominate sci-fi for 40-plus years now? I don't know. Yeah. I, I can't do 2022 20, minus 1979 off the top of my head, but that's fine. No one cares. 40-plus um, years. Um, uh, I just thought that was interesting. A little cool, yeah. cool thing I learned. Helped me see a new thing about the movie that I hadn't seen before. I guess I should also note that one of the things that Giger was inspired by was Lenny Riefenstahl's uh, uh, photography of um, uh, African people uh, when he was designing the Xenomorph. Uh, people should look into the history of that. It's gross. It's disgusting. Um, I don't really feel qualified to just talk about it off the top of my head. But uh, it is like the caveat that I have to talk about when I think about Alien now, especially when I'm like, oh, Giger's work on that movie is so good because the source material he draws from is fraught, to say the least. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that he drew from is the penis. Yes. Uh, so the the Xenomorph is just like a, a giant black dick coming around to threaten people. Yes. Which yes. is very charged. Yes. The gun is good, the penis is evil. Yeah. That is what we've learned from the Alien franchise. <laughs> um, Next on my list, lighter note, Jackie Chan. You know Jackie about this Chan, guy? I love this man. I love this man. Uh, I put on uh, Drunken Master. I've seen Drunken Master 2 a couple of times. Love that movie. Never seen Drunken Master. I thought it was supposed to be a remake. I don't think it has anything to do with the second... Well, I, I thought Drunken Master 2 was supposed to be a remake of Drunken Master. What I have learned from watching Drunken Master is that the two films have nothing in common except for there is a Drunken Master. Yeah. <laughs> there is nothing else that the, the two have in common. This was directed by Yun Woo Ping, um, who we've talked about a bunch of times on this show. Um, he's great. He's great. Um, director of... Many fine films in his own right, most famous in the U.S. for doing the fight choreography to The Matrix, The Matrix Reloaded, Kill Bill 1 and 2, um, Crouching Tiger, um, <clears throat> but yeah. was directing movies in, in Hong Kong in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and many classics in his own right, you know, regardless of his work that is famous in America. Um this was a lot of fun. This is the same year, I believe, that Snake and Eagle Shadow came out, 1978. Yeah, I um, think so. And we were talking when we watched Snake and Eagle Shadow recently about how they're starting to understand that Jackie is funny, but they haven't fully, like, wrapped their head around it. Um, this movie, I thought, had a different problem, which is this movie fully understands how funny Jackie is, but the, like... The um, the fights don't incorporate any props yet in the way that I think Snake and Eagle Shadow 
did incorporate props. He's like scrubbing the floors and stuff, you know. Yeah, and you get the you get the like um one with the the master, it's less with Jackie Chan, but with the like having the cup on his head and everything. Yeah. And so um in this movie, it's kind of interesting because like <sighs> they they fully understand that Jackie is funny, but the martial arts are not as interesting, I thought, as they were in um Snake and Eagle Shadow because, like, it is a very, like, it is very, like, it's too precise. Yeah. It, that, that's what it is, is that Snake and Eagle Shadow and many later, as, you know, Jackie starts to understand his own talents, as other directors understand his talents, um, is that there's a certain sloppiness to Jackie. There is a, like... Certain, like, oh, did he, like, he, he rehearses everything really well and then, um, makes it look improvised, you know? I think that's, like, one of the things that is just, like, masterful about Jackie, um, ahead of, like, anybody else who does this is that he can rehearse a thing a million times and then make it look like he did it right on the first take, you know? Yeah. Um, this movie, every punch felt rehearsed. Everybody knew exactly where they were supposed to be, when they were supposed to be. It it actually, um, that is a that is I think a strength of Yun Wu Ping movies, um, of of yeah. how rehearsed, of how perfect everything is. But I felt like it didn't play into Jackie's strength of of that imperfection. You know. Yeah. Um, and this is also like, <clears throat> uh, so this is. Oh, this is Yun Wu Ping's second movie as director. His first being Snake and Eagle Shadow. I forgot that he directed Snake and Eagle Shadow. So, yeah. like, yeah, it feels like the both of them, because it is so early in both of their careers, in these two movies, they've, like, figured out some things that work, and then, like, they make some adjustments, and they they lost another thing that worked. And, oh, we had to, we had to bring that other thing with us into this next movie or something, you know? Yeah. Like, um, they're just, they're still... They're still figuring out how to how best to do this, and obviously, this is 1978, um, and you know the 80s are like the height of Jackie Chan. You know, we're yeah. we're a long ways away from Police Story. You know, yeah. So <clears throat> fun to fun to see that. Um, the the caveat on this one being, um, I did fall asleep about an hour. <laughs> I was very sweepy. Do you remember any stairs? No, I was very sweepy. <laughs> F question mark. <laughs> um, we should watch Police Story 2 at some point. We should. Uh, we should also watch Magnificent Butcher, Dreadnought, and Drunken Tai Chi at some point. We should. <clears throat> I think I've seen Drunken Tai Chi. No, you just know that I have it. You've seen it multiple yes. times on my Plex and been like, oh, we should watch Drunken Tai Chi, and we never have. Okay, okay. I know that you haven't seen that it. Sounds, that sounds about right. I saw the purple link on Wikipedia. And I was like, "If I seen that one? Yeah. Last but not least, certainly not least, um, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, Freddy's Revenge. This one, I was once again playing video games while it was on, but I was looking at the screen more often. Yeah. Um, That movie's a hoot. I don't think it's as good as the first movie. Uh, I'm glad I did see it because... Um, you know, all, all my friends were like, oh, you got to see Nightmare on M Street 2. It's the gay one. 
Um, and so I was glad because everybody's right. It's the gay one. That movie's fucking gay as shit. Yeah. <laughs> um. But yeah, I, 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 I confess, I was like looking at video games for like seventy five percent of the movie, and that's just like not what this podcast is about. I, I betrayed the ethos of the show. It's okay, I talk about movies that I watched on this podcast while working all the fucking time. I know. I just. <clears throat> I also like. I was playing video games. I think I was high. I think I was sleepy. I don't have like a ton of like critical thoughts. I, you know, I really enjoyed Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2. I don't know that I have much to say about it. Um, I thought I was surprised. Um, one of the things that I liked best about um, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 1 was Part 1. <laughs> Um, one of the things I liked best about that movie was the effects work. Um, I just thought the special effects of that movie were fucking stunning. And, um, I thought that I expected the second movie to be rushed and cheap, and it is, but I don't think that the special effects take any hit. I think that they understood, hey, we can make a cheap, quick follow up to that movie but we have to make sure that like it looks good because that is like the thing that is going to bring people in and i thought they i thought they nailed that i thought it looked really good so um i don't recall stairs off the top of my head though i'm gonna put put question marks just put question marks my brain what you have it on the Icelandic keyboard, I know. and you can't remember where question mark says. I'm just narrating that for the audience because I think it's funny. Sometimes I know, and then sometimes I've just have been typing at work all the. So I've at work I don't do the Icelandic keyboards. Right. <clears throat> Mostly just because with Icelandic keyboard, um, sometimes if I do a typo, like a a thorn will get in there, which is the one that looks yeah yeah. Um, makes the th sound. Uh, that's the one in particular that sometimes will get in there when I'm doing, when I'm typing fast. Um, I don't know why that one in particular shows up sometimes. It's in it's in an odd spot, I've noticed. Yeah. Um. Not necessarily, I, not necessarily the wrong spot, but it's just in a, in a spot where it's like, oh, it really threw me that it's there. Sometimes F will get in there too. Anyway, um... But yeah, because of that, uh, I don't at work because if, if there's a typo, I don't want it to be like extra weird. So, yeah. And also when I go like into the office, sometimes it's harder. But anyway, um, thankfully I haven't had to do that too much. Yeah. But then when I'm really tired, my brain doesn't switch over fast enough. We watched a movie together, though. Yeah. With Molly. With Molly. Um, You know what? Let's just say this begins segment two. Folks, if you're new here, I don't know why you have decided this is the episode to start your Twin Peaks journey on. But if you're new here, um, that was segment one where we talked about other stuff we watched this week. We're pretty tired, so we didn't do our normal disclaimer. Now we're beginning segment two, where we will be talking about... Um, Twin Peaks. Twin Peaks, the works of David Lynch. 
Um, the movie we watched with Molly is Mulholland Drive, um, just because Molly really likes that movie, and we decided we would all watch it together. Um, Molly Holland Drive. Molly Holland Drive, as they say. Um, and, yeah, now as segment two begins, um, we're, we'll spoil Mulholland Drive... We might spoil the ending of Twin Peaks. I had I had a dream last night that, and I in the dream I understood fully and completely the ending of Twin Peaks: The Return in all facets. I'll talk about that later if I feel compelled to. Wait, is this real? Or are you doing a bit about how you had a dream? No, no, I I literally okay. <clears throat> Because so, we're also watching a show where a man will be like, I had a dream last night where I now understand the full case of the death of, of Laura Palmer, including she whispered the name of the killer in my ear. I did forget that part, though. <laughs> no, no, no. So, I had a lot of trouble sleeping last night. Yeah. Which is maybe why I'm so tired on the podcast today. I hadn't thought about that. I also had trouble sleeping last night. Um... I've, then I've, you had another one of your Monica Bellucci dreams. I laid down. About an hour later, I woke up, and I I had a thing in my head that, f- like, I fully, as if Twin Peaks is a puzzle box to be solved, I had solved Twin Peaks. And I will share that with you if you yeah, care. Yeah, and then you called me, and you were like, meet me at the, at the, uh, Great, Northern. the Great Northern. Uh, I've, I've just solved Twin Peaks. Um, and then you just promptly went back to bed. Yeah. And then you forgot. No, 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 no. I did not forget. I still remember the dream. I can tell you about the dream if you care, but I don't, I don't think that Twin Peaks is a puzzle box to be solved fundamentally. So then I had trouble waking. I had trouble sleeping a second time at like 5 a.m. I woke up at like five. And I needed, I needed like sounds to get me back to sleep. And I was still had Twin Peaks. I was having Twin Peaks dreams all fucking night. Um, you did watch a lot of Twin Peaks. Yeah. So we, we'll get there. <laughs> We've gone so far afield. Now I want to know your Twin Peaks dream. <laughs> so let me finish telling the fucking story of not sleeping. So at 5 a.m. I put on that four hour fucking video of Twin Peaks explained the mystery solved. And I watched like an hour of that, and it did put me to sleep. But, oh my God, that video is stupid. (laughs) That was like, I had my dream last night where I solved the puzzle box of Twin Peaks, and I thought, I don't think Twin Peaks is really like a puzzle box to be solved. And then I watched this video where someone solved Twin Peaks like a puzzle box, and I'm like, thank God I realized that was a stupid idea. (laughs) Yeah. Well, now I need to know your dream. Okay. So, we're... We're beginning. So Mike and Bob. (laughs) Spoiler section. We can spoil all Twin Peaks, also Mulholland Drive. Also Mulholland Drive, beginning right now. Through the darkness of future past, the magician longs to see. Um, What's the next line? Something rings out between two worlds. A chant rings out between two worlds? I think so. Uh, Firewalk with me. Laura Palmer is... Between the two worlds of life and death, she is crying out, fire walk with me. Someone understand the horrible things I've been through. Dale Cooper is the magician longing to see. But in longing to see, um, he doesn't actually 
he doesn't actually do that. He doesn't actually firewalk with her. He just tries to fix things um, because he doesn't care about her. He cares about seeing. He cares about um, fixing things as if these are things that can be fixed. That was the dream I had. Okay. That's episode 18 and episode one together. I don't think it's very interesting. I don't, what does that get you? Where does that, where does that like, this is the thing is that I watched that four hour fucking video about explaining Twin Peaks. Um, and I just found it really silly as an exercise because it's like, what new understanding uh, of, I don't think David Lynch is a person who makes art because I I don't I think I think David Lynch wants you to watch his movies and then understand something that you take out of the movie with you. And I think if you solve Twin Peaks like a puzzle box like that and I I am able to just cleanly map Dan- Dale Cooper is the magician, Laura is crying out between two worlds like I think if I'm able to like make that one to one like draw those lines, I don't think that actually produces anything nearly as interesting as like anything we talked about in the Blue Velvet episode. Which I still think and I think I've I think I've said this on the podcast, I don't remember. I think you can listen to the Blue Velvet episode and understand everything that I'm going to say about the return, um, if you know what you're looking for. I think everything yeah. that I have to say about the return is in that episode. <laughs> so Here's the thing that I just, because I'm not going to watch a four-hour YouTube video. Also, I did I'm not going to watch a four-hour YouTube video. Also, I did it at double speed, so it was two-hour video. But I'm also, not going to watch a two-hour YouTube video. No, you're not. It's bad. It's lo- Even at double speed, that shit's longer than the seventh seal. I have a rule. <laughs> if you, if someone was like, no, this four-hour YouTube video, and if you speed it up to two hours, is really good, it's a, actually a truly good use of your time, I'd still be like, no. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't understand watching YouTube like this. This is, this is... I go to YouTube being like, I want to see that Irish man burning a, a briquette for like 10 minutes while his dog sits by the fire and pleasant Irish music plays. That's all I want out of YouTube. This is, this is basically <laughs> how... The thing you are describing is the thing that I was neglect purposefully not describing with like the concept of watching anime is that like you just suggest to me watch anime and I'm like why what no <laughs> I don't have a reason for that other than maybe I watched too many Ghibli movies and it made me stop liking anime but like I don't know <laughs> anyway um I think I was having Twin Peaks dreams though because Molly and I in in preparation for me guesting on reprise, I didn't want to accidentally spoil something that hadn't come yet. And so we watched, um, Molly and I watched episodes one through 14 of the return. So I had the return on the brain. We did the podcast. And then this morning we watched episode 15 of the return. So now that Molly, now that Molly has gone back home, I will probably be watching 16, 17 and 18 sometime this week, just to like, close it out um yeah but 
all y'all who can't eat without watching YouTube, I don't understand. And then you just post about how you're mad about some idiot on YouTube. And I'm like, why? Why do you do this to yourself? I just wanted noise. Okay, I watched... Listen to, like, your friend's podcast or just, like, watch a TV show that you like. I don't understand why people watch a YouTube video and then get mad at some (laughs) idiot on the internet's opinion about a thing. I don't... That's the part that I don't understand. Okay, I found... Anyway, this 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 four hour video was dumb and bad. So this is this is what I'm saying, though, which is I'm never going to watch a four hour video about Twin Peaks Explained. Like, if you told me it was fucking incredible, I still wouldn't watch it. If you're like, no, he got everything right. I I just can't. Mm -hmm. I can't like I'm not going to sit down and watch a fucking YouTube video. That's (laughs) That's not who I am. Um. But also, I'm like, so I, I've seen this theory, and I don't know if it's from this, of like, oh, the ending of Twin Peaks is, like, uh, Jaude, like Judy, is like some super evil force mm-hmm. that's living in the, the Palmer's house, essentially. Mm-hmm. It's like the ultimate evil force, but it resides in a single house. Yeah. I don't understand that. There's some explanation for all this. And when Cooper goes and takes the uh not Laura Palmer but the other lady Carrie Page Carrie Page uh takes her to the house and then she screams like that Laura Palmer in the atom bomb explosion is born to be this thing that is going to overload Judy with suffering that there's going to be so much Garmin Bosia produced by Laura Palmer and this is like the final thing is the like Carrie Page thing that is going to like so overload uh Jaude that she like you know ODs on Garmin Bosey, I guess. That's silly. Is that from this Twin Peaks explained? No, thank God. I I like ran into this. I was looking at a Twin Peaks article once. Uh this is before I like had all the stuff to block the fucking ads and fandom, whatever. Mm-hmm. And the, there was just a video at the top. I was just like looking at like some page. And it just started playing, and it was like an explanation of the final episode of playing on the Twin Peaks like fan wiki. Yeah, an explanation of the final episode, and so and it was like only two minutes, but it was like a little like snippet thingy, and I was just like, "What the fuck is this?" That's a stupid idea. <laughs> That's a really stupid idea of what's happening in Twin Peaks. But then like the wiki was like doing stuff to like point towards this, and I'm like, "Man." Fuck all this. Anyway. <laughs> um, so what's this Twin Peaks Explained thing? Uh, it's it's really not worth talking about. Um, the, the, the value that I got out of it truly is that I... I could feel the gears turning in my brain as I watched the return of, like, I want to solve the mystery. And what I got out of that video is that I don't want to solve the mystery. I don't think the mystery is solvable. If it were solvable, I don't think that is like a fruitful endeavor, you know? Yeah. Um, I think that the final like two episodes, the, the absolutely off the wall goofiness of the like resolution 
of all uh-huh. the stuff with Dougie, and finally you get Cooper back. Yeah. Um, and it's just like goofy and stupid, and then you get this like, uh, you know, sort of counterpoint mm. in the final episode that's like far darker. Uh, Cooper's far closer to like the evil Coop that you've seen in some ways. Uh, but is also just far more just like an actual FBI guy without the like charm that Cooper has. Mm-hmm. Um, but is is still operating in this mode that Cooper has always operated in, which is that his like goal is to like solve the murder and ideally to like, you know, save Laura Palmer. Yeah. To not just solve the murder, but save her. But that this like entire impulse towards like detective, towards like, um, like a thing that we've talked about on this podcast is the way that like Cooper is operating as a detective and in a way that's going to be different than Albert, who is uh-huh. more just like in your face about this. But I think that like Cooper very much is in a similar mode is like actually kind of lacking the actual care for these people because he's concerned with solving the case, but he, he goes about it in such a way that is charming. And so people are, uh, you know, like him in the way that they don't like Albert. Um, and part of what makes Albert such a great character to me in the long run is that he is so fucking honest about what it is to be an FBI agent. Yeah. In the way that Cooper is not being. Yeah. Um, but Cooper then becomes this like idea of a hero who can like solve women's pain, like this male hero that can solve women's pain that exists in like fiction. And the thing is critical of that. The thing about this video is that it so heavily centers Cooper, right? Yeah. It so profoundly centers Cooper. One of the core ideas, most of the video, literally most of the video is about like the lines on the floor um, in the red room kind of look like the static lines on TV and the red curtains kind of look like the red curtains on a stage. Um, and <clears throat> the uh, owl ring kind of looks like this one table that we see the arm, like, talk to or whatever. And the the green of the owl ring is just like the green of the light. Like, just literally just, like, connecting these dots. Just, like, connecting them as if that is a useful thing to do. Um, and And... A huge part of this analysis is that, like, Dale Cooper is literally the audience. The thing that was frustrating about the video is that it gets to this place that I think you and I also sit in of the the return and, to a lesser extent, the original show are about, like, television and mass media, um... And then this video, instead of like going broader, like we do in the Blue Velvet episode, gets to a very simple Dale Cooper is the audience. Um, and I just I don't know what that gets you, <laughs> you know, because yeah. because he just belabors what Dale Cooper is and what Dale Cooper does and and how he behaves. Um, he never once mentions Janie E. He never once mentions Audrey Horn. He never once mentions, like... He barely mentions Laura Palmer, you know? Yeah. And I think if you um, are thinking through Twin Peaks and you do not think through 
the ways that women are depicted in Twin Peaks, you are not thinking through Twin Peaks. Yeah. Like... <laughs> well, and also, you get to the point of, like, there's a, a line being drawn between Cooper and the audience, but then you don't take the step to, and then the ending of the series of, like, the return is deeply critical of Cooper as, like, a yeah. thing to be. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he's just, he's just, like... Like, full-heartedly, like, Cooper's a cool guy, basically. Um, which is just, like, not what the show is doing <laughs> in yeah. it. Um, but, 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 um, what am I looking for here? Like, point. I was, I was building to a point. I swear to God, I was. <laughs> it's fine. You want to talk about Mulholland? Sure. Um, I mean, we've we've yeah, done yeah. a whole. We've... I said sure, but now I'm like, eh. So one of the things is like, I wanted to watch a movie that Molly liked with Molly. Yeah. Uh, if I was picking a movie, I would not be like, let's watch the one that we're gonna watch again in like half a year or whatever. Here's the thing, you know. Here's the thing. Because I'm going to have to talk about it a bunch there. So, like, if by what you mean by let's... Do you want to talk about Mulholland Drive is, yeah, that shit whips. Yeah, I no. love that fucking movie. That's a, that's sure. all I wanted was, like, how did it treat you on this but viewing? I've already recorded an entire podcast about Mulholland Drive, yeah. and we're going to record another one. Yes. <laughs> so, yes. um... Uh, yeah, I just I just wanted to ask, like, How'd you feel about it this time? You like it more, you like it less? You like it about the same? I like it about the same. Yeah. It's still one of the best movies ever made. <clears throat> I still basically believe what I said in the Mulholland Drive episode, which is that um, I think there is a way to like puzzle box it as, oh, this is the dream that the people in the second half is having, blah, blah, blah. Here's how everything connects. But that I actually think that the whole thing is more about like depictions of women in cinema and specifically around lesbianism Mm -hmm. and how like everything contained within it that both sides are, are fantasies of lesbianism and specifically fantasies of lesbianism that are geared towards a male audience. Would you say that Mulholland drive is like the dream who dreams but in dreaming becomes the dreamer. What what the fuck is it that Monica Bellucci says? I don't. I don't Monica know. Bellucci is is quoting is quoting <laughs> <laughs> quoting Vedic scripture in the Monica Bellucci dream, where yeah. she says something like, "We are like." Fuck me! It's I'm gonna feel really bad if I misquote it because it's like an actual like belief that like people hold you know we are like the dreamer who dreams and then lives inside the dream yeah that's Mulholland Drive there you go yeah I solved it (laughs) anyway yeah I just I think that Mulholland Drive is specifically about like uh male oriented depictions of lesbianism Mm -hmm. and uh one is the fantasy of how hot it is to watch two women have sex and everything's perfect um and then the other one is 
basically, wouldn't it be great as a dude to like to like turn a lesbian straight? So anyway, we took a bathroom break. going to be. I might try and vamp a little bit. Uh, I've been a bit rowdy on this podcast. I hope it's been fun to listen to. But uh, yeah, I, I've i been feeling a little bit like, oh, I wish I was watching more movies. Um, 
And some of it is that just, you know, I like this was, was this just like a week or so? Yeah. Yeah. Cause it was, Molly was still here at that point. Um, yeah. So it was like two weeks ago that my toddler was really sick. And so that just threw things for a loop. Um, and then I just like got into this hole of just like, I am like watching Zeta Gundam. Um, I think the part of it is, uh, and it's, it's going to be, I mean, if I really like don't watch much turn a, it's pretty doable. So I, I do have it as this goal to like get through Shars counterattack, uh, before we get to iron blooded orphans on ghost divers, just to kind of have some of that backing. Um, because I've never watched through some of the like actual Universal Century stuff outside of the OVAs, and I'm kind of curious when I get to Shars Counterattack if um, I'm going to to watch that and be like, oh, I've seen this before. Because I know that I saw something else that I think was from like, like I thought it was from the original series, but now I'm not sure. Um, I feel like I haven't seen it yet. Uh, I. I think I've talked on podcasts before that um, sometimes I would go to this like rental shop um, that was just like a bunch of, some of them felt like they must've been bootleg and stuff, Uh, but it was like specifically focused around like uh, Japanese media in particular. Um, It was one like sort of servicing more of a, uh, uh, like it's like in Schomburg. I mean, not anymore. Um, it was in Mitsuo in Schaumburg, which has like a higher Japanese population uh, around Chicago. This is before I lived here um, that I would actually go rent stuff sometimes. But um, yeah, I would rent him sometimes if I like visited. I had a brother who lived here. Um, actually, both of my brothers at various points. I I have four, but two of them lived here at various points, one shorter and one for a much longer period. Um, and then my like grandparents are out in the suburbs near Schaumburg. So I'd sometimes go and rent VHSs in particular. I think sometimes DVDs towards the end of it, but I remember getting a number of VHSs and this is how I watched like a lot of it is like, I don't really know what in the franchise I watched um, because a lot of it did not have much English on it. Um, but you could sometimes get ones that did have like a, a subtitle option. Um, and so there are some that I, I got that just did not have subtitles and I still just would like kind of put it on um, and did not really understand what was happening. And I think that's what happened with, with Pat Labor or Pat Labor. Um, I always feel like it's supposed to be like Pat Labor, but pat labor um but yeah i i i remember i got some so i got like the the english uh ova stuff for like um more in the pocket and 08th ms team and then there was something else that was maybe shars counterattack but that was like entirely in japanese that i watched once so I'm curious if it will, if I will like have sense memories when I get to Shars Counterattack that I saw it before. Um, or if I just like got some episodes or something, I don't know. Maybe it's just some other OVA. I have no memory of what it is. I'm kind of curious what it's going to be. Anyway, uh, Autumn's back now. Uh, but what I was going to say is I'm kind of excited to start watching some more movies because now I'm like through Zeta Gundam mm-hmm. and Double Zeta I'm going to have to watch while I'm biking. Um, 
And I'm looking forward to like having something that I'm going to kind of work on when I'm, cause we're just doing this like hiatus from, uh, ghost divers recording, not from releasing. Um, but yeah, I feel like there's some stuff like I'll probably continue to watch licorice recoil unless like I, I really sour on it. Um, but I haven't made much progress on it, but I feel like nothing I'm not going to hit the same pace that I had with like Zeta Gundam because there's just a point when I was watching Zeta Gundam where I was like, Oh, I could do this. I could do like through Shars counterattack for sure before we get to iron blooded orphans. Um, and so that's like kind of my goal. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I want to watch more movies again. I was hoping to be able to watch one today, but it didn't work out. Yeah. So I'm back. Yeah. Um, Hi, back. <laughs> uh, I feel like my vibes have been wretched on the podcast so far, so I'm going to try. Fu- I've, I, I, I don't know if it made it in. There's some stuff I might cut. I did say I've been, uh, I think, extra punchy. See, I feel like I haven't been punchy enough because I feel like I've just been kind of like down in the dumps this whole episode. Um, I think you and I have different responses to being kind of depressed on a podcast. Yeah. And yours is that you're just kind of depressed. Yeah. And mine is, uh, I have like decades of history hiding my depression. I mean, there, there are weeks where like, I feel like shit and I show up and I put on a good face for this. This is just this week. It's not happening. I, I have nothing in the tank right now, you know? Yeah. But let's talk about Twin Peaks. Let's talk about, let's talk about episode four, rest in pain. Um, sorry, episode three. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> um, I'm gonna take a sip of my water and then. So, I put. And I had you watch the YouTube video because I don't think you listened to the actual full episode that came out, which is fine. Oh, you sent me the video, but you sent it to me actually moments after I downloaded. The ornate stairwells, and I just jumped ahead to the very end. Okay. So I did not see the full video. Basically, all of it was there. A little bit of the audio is kind of hard to make out because I'm there's Bella Lugosi's dad, but um, yeah, I just wanted something for the the non homophobic zone of the podcast, and so I I think I just went to YouTube and typed in um like. Ray Wise Twin Peaks interview or something. I don't know why I picked Ray Wise, but I did. And I found that one and I thought it was kind of interesting because I think a thing that we've been talking through with this is like, like you watch the pilot and it feels like there's so much stuff being set up. Like there, there's so much like weight around things that when you know that it's Leland is just going to really pay off. Yeah. And it just keeps happening. There just keeps being these really intense, like, uh, resonant know. moments. Yes. And, and again, there's stuff here that can point, but like, the stuff that points towards, you know, Ben Horn. Uh huh. Is like, oh, he's there pushing for the, the body to go to the funeral and, for Albert not to be able to continue the autopsy or, Oh, he's tied to one eye Jackson is like a menacing man. Right. Yeah. Like it's all like typical solving a mystery stuff in the same way that Leo stuff is. Yeah. 
Whereas the stuff around Leland Palmer is so much more like uh, intense to the actual like trauma of what's happening to her. Yes. And not like towards just solving a mystery. It feels more like thematic from the get go. Yes. And so what I, what I thought was interesting in that is, um, you know, Ray Wise saying that he, and he's there with, um, Shirley. So if people didn't listen to the interview, um, Ray Wise recounts the story of when he found out that Leland was the killer. Um, David and Mark Frost and Cheryl Lee, uh, like, and, um, Richard, Richard, Richard Beamer. Get get Ray Wise into a room, basically, and they say, and David says, you know, it was always Leland, um, and <clears throat> like, it's it's Leland. It's always been Leland. It was always going to be Leland, basically. Yeah. Um, which is contrary. There's more more stuff there that maybe we'll pick apart in just a moment, but that is contrary to the let's say folklore around this, which is that um, because David intended never to reveal the killer that like David hadn't even decided who the killer was until like he was forced to make a reveal basically that in, in his mind it could have been anyone, you know? Yeah. And we've been watching these first couple episodes and then hearing that interview. And I just, I think David knew it was Leland. I think David knew it was always Leland. I think Mark Frost knew it was always Leland. Like, I think they were just... And and that follows, too, from, like, you know, David has talked so much about, um, like, loyalty. David has talked uh, in his creative process about... You get an idea. He, you know, he he calls it like catching the big fish. Like he catches an idea as if it is a fish, and he tries really hard to remain loyal to. Oh my God, Lem, you've been in here for a minute. <laughs> he he catches an idea and he tries to remain loyal to that idea, like from beginning to end. You know, um, he tries to, like. Stay, stick with the truth of that idea from the outset of a project to the end of a project. And I... Knowing that, it is just kind of hard for me to believe that David Lynch never was like, oh, I'll figure out who the killer is when I get there. Like, that just doesn't seem yeah. like his method, you know? Just let him out. He's, gonna He's just going to keep... I know. Anyway, <laughs> everyone loves Lem the podcasting cat, but I'm always slightly annoyed when this is happening. Because <laughs> I just want to like talk and not have to keep opening and closing the door and being like, yeah. is that bad audio? And, yeah. Anyway, it's even just distracting from what you're saying. Yeah. But anyway, um, and it, I cannot, like, I wonder where the whole thing of like David Lynch didn't know came from. Yeah. Like I think who I, who said that? Was that from like David? I think it has to be because I, I could so easily see the writers' room or people on the crew or whatever asking about it, 
And David Lynch being like, the easy way to do this is just be like, it could be anybody. I like, I haven't decided. It could literally be anyone. Yeah, we're not going to reveal it. It could be anybody in here. Yeah, I don't. I don't know who the killer is because then yeah. that's going to like, if you're like, I know, but I'm not going to tell you. That is is prompting people to like one try to figure it out more, and two to like press you on it more. Yes, and and on the return. Um, and, and other projects, I believe, in Inland Empire also worked this way. He would bring actors in and he would give them their lines, but you you wouldn't see, like, like actors would not have the script for the entirety of The Return. They would have they it would, for their scenes. For their scenes. And so it created a lot of, like, like mystery around, like, I know, like, I, I'm Kimmy Robertson, and I know what Lucy's up to in season three, but I don't know what, like, you know, everything else that's happening is. Um, and it's very easy to see how David, like, starts at, well, I'll know who the killer is and not tell anybody and arrive at, now nobody gets to know what the fucking script is. <laughs> yeah. You know? Um, um, yeah. Yeah. I also thought the other interesting thing, and this can bring us into talking about rest and pain properly, um, is Ray Wise saying, um, like he wanted as, to, he wanted to like walk out and not do the show anymore. He was he was um a, a father of a very young daughter, like a very young child at that point, and was so upset at the idea of killing his own daughter that he just he didn't think he could do it. And the thing that David Lynch said to him to get him to, like, be at some sort of personal peace is David describes a scene of, like, Laura forgiving Leland um, in, you know, some sort of, like, realm beyond life and death uh, in some sort of, like, afterlife, like, Laura forgives Leland. Um, I thought that was interesting just because it's, like, I don't know, is that, like, a... I genuinely don't know. Does the things we see in season two, maybe like Laura does forgive Leland. The things we see in fire walk with me, maybe Leland tells himself that Laura forgives him, you know, like, yeah, maybe those, maybe that's what David says to get Ray wise to do it because that's what the character of Leland believes or, or maybe that's what David actually believes. I, d- I don't. I don't know. I think that's interesting. That the thing that he ha- he the thing that he says <clears throat> is Laura forgives Leland, and yeah. that allows Ray Wise to get into that character. I don't know or about the truth of that, but it- is it David Lynch's wording it of Laura forgives Leland because that's that is what's going to help get Ray Wise through it, but also then maybe David believes to some degree that like Laura maybe doesn't fully forgive everything that happened, but like has an understanding of the way perhaps especially in death of the way that like Leland was abused and things Yeah, that like in that you can find some level of like forgiveness for what happened. Even if you're not like fully forgiving everything that happened, you would like reach an understanding of a person where you're like, Oh, like I can see some kinship in you. Even as you were my abuser, I can see how this like behavior came about from you being abusive. This um, is not like the religion that David subscribes to in any way, but like, you know, 
as we see things through a mirror dimly, now we shall see each other face to face. You know, like that yeah. is literally like the thing that you're describing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and may- maybe that's what's happening. Maybe there are all sorts of things happening. I just thought that was a really interesting little like tidbit to chew on, you know, yeah. to like mull over. Yeah. Um, and like forgiveness can be such a, uh, there's lots of ways that that word can go. Yeah. There's lots of like emotions that that word. Can yeah. Go yeah. Um, and I I would be will. I think that the series might support a certain amount of Laura recognizing the way that like Leland went through similar pains. Yes. The way that in some ways she was able to escape like having to struggle with uh, engaging in that cycle because of her death. Mm hmm. And that you are in the way that like you can have an incredibly there there are ways that like I can feel forgiveness or something for like my grandpa who is completely out of my life after like I was three mm-hmm. until he was dying and then said he was so sorry that he wasn't in my life and I felt nothing. There are ways that I can find forgiveness for that, and there's a ways word in which I can't. Yeah, totally. You know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there are ways that I can like find reconciliation with people in my life. Yeah. Even if like things are never going to be necessarily good again. Yeah. You, you can forgive somebody without then like linking arms and hop, like hopscotching on down to the donut store. Yeah. Or know? being like, and so what you did was justified or was okay or whatever. Yeah. Um, you can just be like, I, I have like come to some degree to which I can like move beyond like this level of just like pure revile with who you are or whatever, Mm -hmm. you know? Anyway, um, Leland on the casket pumping up and down. So rest in pain. This episode mainly centers around, um, I, I really want to blaze through this because I feel like we've exhausted a lot of the stuff that I like. <laughs> yeah. The funeral of Laura Palmer. Yeah. This episode centers around um, the funeral of Laura Palmer. We open on um, Albert being a real shithead, basically. Um, yeah. We, well, well, okay. At we first we on... get like Cooper and Audrey, yes. the one-eyed Jack stuff, the meeting with um, Harry Truman and Lucy. I love her so much. Yes, this scene's um, fucking exquisite. Of of just like this is a, this is one of the iconic Twin Peaks scenes of, um, and then Laura in the dream leaned over me and told me who the killer was. And who was it? Oh, I don't remember. Damn. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> it's one. It's one of the best things at all of Twin Peaks. Is, yeah. is like Harry Truman just fully buys into okay, I guess Cooper got the murderer from his dream, sure. You know? Yeah. Um, and, oh, if only you remembered we would have this case wrapped up. And then Lucy being like, Damn, yeah. That's what you said. <laughs> Break the code, solve the crime. Truman gets a call over his walkie-talkie that's like, hey, there's a fight at the morgue. Um and so they go down to the morgue. Albert is being a real shitbag. Basically, he wants to like drill holes into Laura Palmer's skull and like do all sorts of like really invasive things to really like get as much information as he can. Okay. Huh. Um, another quick aside. Yes. A thing that Cooper says from oh. the dream 
is break the code, solve the crime, which points towards a puzzle box reading. Yes. But if we are meant to be critical of Cooper. Yes. If, and then here's the other thing that I'm tying into. David Lynch is talking about how we're never going to know who the killer is. Hmm. That is pointing to, here's break the code, solve the crime. But David Lynch is saying that the whole point of the series is that you don't solve it. Yeah. Well, and I think even here, there's we got the like the this whole contradiction that we've been talking about with with Cooper and that the perspective of Cooper of break the code, solve the crime is actually like the the fraught or flawed one. Well, and I think like you know even taking away all the other David Lynch that we know. And just looking at like Eraserhead to see to season one, episode four of Twin Peaks. Just looking at that, um, I think David Lynch has firmly established in his work that like dreams are a place that is like open to interpretation. Dreams are like a magical and, and sacred place um, that can lead to all sorts of things. And here's Dale Cooper saying, ah, we, you know, we'll do Freud at my dream and, yeah. you know, produce a result, you know? Yeah. Um, which is, uh, you know, contradictory to, in the last episode, Cooper, like, gets the dream of the, the Tibetan method of, like, solving crimes, and that leads him to a sort of open-ended thing of, you know... I guess I'll throw rocks at a bottle and see what happens. Yeah. And his immediate instinct is to take that like open-ended dream and systematize it, you know? Yes. And also to be <laughs> like, uh, and then it made me suddenly care about the plight of the Tibet, like the Tibetan monks. Yeah. I didn't care. And then I had this dream and now I care. Yeah. But also in a way that is like oriented around, uh, like, how the Tibetan monks need to, like, you know, like, support for them. Anyway. Yeah. So, Albert is being a real dick. He wants to mutilate Laura Palmer's body. Um, Doc Hayward and Ben Horn are like, no, you can't do that. Um, Albert does his big, iconic, like, dressing down of um, uh, Sheriff Truman yeah. and gets socked in the fucking face for it. It rocks. Yeah. Um, I forget all the the D words he says of like dimwits, dumbbells, uh, whatever. Um, It's great. (laughs) Cooper ultimately gives him orders to turn over the body of um, Laura Palmer for the funeral. Um, Back at the Palmer household. From here, we go to... A couple different scenes of people getting ready for the funeral. So Leland is getting ready for the funeral. He's watching Invitation to Love. And in walks Madeline Pryor, played by Cheryl Lee. He's watching an episode of Invitation to Love about uh, twin sisters and one of them's dead. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, but the other one's also in the show and they're both played by the same actress. Yeah. And then... Madeline. Yeah. Which I forgot that, that Maddie shows up this early, you know, yeah. uh, which I am fucking delighted by. Um, I'm 
What I want to do is I want to do the Wikipedia diving, like the fan theory diving on like, what do people make of Madeline Pryor? Because like Madeline Pryor does not come up in that four hour video even once, you know, Madeline yeah. Pryor does not come up in the return at all. I would love to know what people make of this character, because I think that she's like fascinating and really like done dirty by the show on purpose in a way. Yeah. Um, I'm really excited to talk more about her. Um, and yeah, the fan, the fandom just does not care about her like this. Yeah. Um, but anyway, um, there's nothing really to say there. We're just introduced to Maddie. Um, we're introduced to, uh, Norma's husband. Who's, uh, possibly going to be released soon. We don't get yes. the husband, but we get this plot line getting introduced. Uh, not too much there. Yep. Um, Cooper and Sheriff Truman go before the funeral to question Leo Johnson. They go to look ducks in a lake. Oh, also Leo Johnson's here. We should we should. <laughs> but did you see the ducks in a lake? <laughs> um, and they they ask him a couple questions and basically get nowhere because they have no reason to be talking to this guy at all, which is very funny. Yeah. Other uh, than uh, he threw a rock at a bottle and it broke. Uh-huh. Um, and then we really get into, like, the shit, basically. Yeah. Um, oh, actually, you know, I'm going to reorder these scenes slightly for our podcast. Uh, no, I'm not. I'm just going to... We're... Listeners, we're doing what I suspect we will probably be doing going forward. It... Because, at least for the time being, the fan wiki does have very nice summaries that we can just, like, cliff notes real quick. The next scene is Bobby and Major Briggs um, talking about Laura's funeral. Mainly, Major Briggs, like, trying to share some wisdom with his son and Bobby not responding. In the extreme... Bobby. Yeah, the... the Well... Bobby being very like shitty teen and then Major Briggs being like just the most bizarre like I can see that you are not ready to like have a meaningful you know, exchange have a meaningful exchange at this time <laughs> uh, but I hope to impress upon you This scene is really good. I really like Major Briggs knowing that like Five minutes after the end of season two, Major Briggs is going to fucking die. But before that, he is going to like lay out all the stuff that like Bobby's going to find in the return. And because he just truly believes that like Bobby's going to grow up and be cut like sort his shit out. It's really fucking touching, you know, yeah. Um, that is like, you know, that is not something that David could have known or, or stayed true to over the years. But, but older but, Bobby is going to be ready for a mutual exchange with his dead father through the weird clues that he set up. Yes, it's really fucking touching. Yeah. Um. Um. <clears throat> Ed and Nadine have a nice little conversation, and Ed, Ed's like, "Oh God," um, because Nadine is like throwing herself all over him, uh, and James comes in and is like, "I'm not going to the funeral." Um. Yeah. Audrey introduces us to the crime door. Um, yeah. Oh, you skipped over. We get the results of the autopsy. Oh, yes. Yes. Um, which is just like cocaine. 
which we already knew basically. Uh, the twine, the arms spin back. We get that here. Uh-huh. Um, she was like sort of tied up with her arms back probably. Mm-hmm. Um, and like claw marks or bites possibly from an animal. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's a really funny moment, um, where Cooper reaches into his jacket pocket to get his tape recorder to talk to Diane. And I really thought he was reaching for a cigarette. Cooper doesn't smoke. Cooper doesn't smoke. Um, then we get the funeral. This is the big famous scene. Um, so the Reverend talks way too long, um, about how Laura was the best of us. Laura, um, was this and that. Um, and he loved her so much and is truly going to miss her. Everybody loved her. Everybody cared about her. Um, and eventually Bobby gets sick of it and, um, flips that shit, flips that shit upside down. Just that shit upside down. (laughs) Um, starts yelling at everybody saying we all kill Laura Palmer. Um, (laughs) Bobby really the mouthpiece of David Lynch. (laughs) In many yeah. ways, through these, in a, yeah, in a weird way, yeah. Uh, and then M- mommy has become the mouthpiece of me and tries to run up on James. <laughs> <laughs> um, Leland famously jumps onto the coffin and weeps. Sarah tells him, "Don't ruin this too." This was Which, really that line is like you fucking knew David. You fucking knew. Don't ruin this too. What could that possibly be referring to? Yeah. Um Sorry, I'm doing a big stretch. And just like the the whole pumping up and down being like sexual kind of Yeah, like it, it's like a yeah. sexual thing. It's also Oh, we should talk here. A little bit. Vibes wise. Um, this is the first episode. Oh, knowing that this is the one where the, the thing was going to pump up and down, I thought it was interesting that when uh, Albert gets hit, he like fully lands on top of the dead body. Yeah, he like, does. Like laying on top of her too. Yes. Um, in a way that doesn't feel like real to the way he was punched. You yes. Know? In a way that feels intentional to set him up that way. Um, per, like, in some ways to perhaps prime the viewer to think more of like when Leland is in, in that same position uh-huh. on top of the corpse. Um, For sure. Cause it feels more like plainly like weird and sexual when Albert like falls on her, you know, you sort yeah. of have to like make a leap to get to like, um, not make like a leap, but like connected view dots to get to like, Leland is um, being like sexual at this moment, you know. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to talk about like. Uh, well, and the when, the other thing I think is interesting for some of the stuff that we talked about with Cooper is then he like takes her hand because it's like fallen. Right. Is it right? Yeah. Um. Anyway, Cooper being like delicate with her in a way that like Leland and Albert are, you know, like, you know. Being very like crass in a way, yeah. Um, I just want to talk about this is like one of the episodes that's not directed by David Lynch. Um, I really like the direction of this episode, 
but it's also weird in the ways that it is trying to look like David Lynch directed it. Did you feel the same way? Yeah. Um, just like the, the slow-mo in, um, the breaking up of the fight between Bobby and James, um, or like the stiltedness of Leland falling onto the coffin. There's just like a way that it's like, you understand like what David does, but you don't quite have the toolkit to do it, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I, I. I don't. I don't think this was bad by any stretch. I just think it wasn't like it didn't. Ha- didn't have that certain something that David brings to it. You know. Yeah, I thought we like we joked about this when we were watching it, but it was awesome because when uh, there's the conversation between uh, Major Briggs and Bobby, it starts with Bobby like gesturing weirdly at like a cr- a bizarre cross thing that they have in their home. Mm-hmm. I guess. Um, I kind of remembered the scene, but I was like, oh, is this like taking place at the funeral home? Because there's this weird cross. Yeah. Oh, it's just their house. Yeah. Um, yeah. And just, I don't know. Like a thing that we, we were joking about is being like, oh, of course, David Lynch brings in someone else to direct them with a bunch of Christian stuff in it. <laughs> um, the next scene is um, the, we are introduced to the Bookhouse Boys. Basically, the Bookhouse Boys invite Cooper to the diner. Also, Cooper's immediately like, "How long have you been in love with Norma?" the The actual really cute part about that is, um, uh, Truman bets, um, Ed the bill. Like, I bet you he figures it out like within a moment of sitting down. Basically, <laughs> yeah. And Ed's like, "No way!" And then he does it, which is very fun. <laughs> yeah, it's like I guess you're getting this one. But they um they sort of induct him into the bookhouse boys and explain like Ed is not a deputy. I make sure that Ed's not a deputy so that he can do things the police can't do, you know? Mm-hmm. Um and uh people love our town. It's it's got such a kind, you know, mm-hmm. such a, a quaint, like peaceful, we like it this way. Uh, but also, this nice, quiet town has a secret dark side. <gasps> There's evil in those woods. No. And the Bookhouse Boys have always stood against it. Yeah. Um, and in a way where you watch it now and you're like, ah, yes, the owls are not what they seem. <laughs> well, like all that stuff. But I think the way it's meant to originally be taken is just like, and so we're going to go try and bust someone who's dealing drugs to like high schoolers. That's the evil. Right. Right. Um, but also I do think it like, I think it nicely opens up. Like it's easy to watch the last two episodes and be like, why does Truman just go along with this shit? And if he genuinely believes there is like a dark magical force out in the woods, like, okay, sure. Maybe this FBI guy is like in tune with those sorts of things, you know? Yeah. Um, it also kind of explains why they're like, now let's induct Cooper into this because he's got, he's having dreams. He's got this Tibetan rock throwing method. Uh, (laughs) seems like real bookhouse boy material to me. So they take him to the bookhouse where they're interrogating, um, Bernard Renault, who, um, was just caught smuggling cocaine across the board. Joey Paulson. Totally forgot this dude exists. Doesn't matter. <laughs> Does he come back? I don't. No fucking idea. Um. 
Um, anyway, Renault brother. This is basically just to set up the Renaults are going to be evil. You know, we don't really get a ton here, honestly. Yeah. Um, and they're Canadian. <laughs> I don't think we actually get their Canadian, but we get a weird accent from we do from, get uh, Bernard. We, we we start to get the seeds of evil Canada. Yeah. Um. So Jacques catches on that they caught Bernard and calls Leo, and Leo is um, you know, um, scraping at his shoe with a knife, which is just weirdo behavior. Yeah. I'm presuming, like, trying to, like... He's probably just got a bunch of mud in there. Yeah. Um. Um. But, yeah, Leo is going to come and pick up Shock. So, we know that... We know now I'm that, like, like... If you got a bunch of fucking mud, it, maybe it's... Maybe there's, like, rocks and shit, too. Yeah. Because I feel like I would just, like, put the soles in some water and, like, loosen stuff up. I don't know. I don't think that Leo's a smart guy. That's true. He um, would use a knife over water nine times out of ten, I feel yes. like. For just, like, general problems. Thirsty? Knife. <laughs> um, I got a delicate operation. Of, no, you stay right there, you little cat. You just... Uh, okay. But yeah, Leo takes off when he gets the phone call. Uh, Shelly's like, who was that? Where are you going? And he's like, none you don't... Your... Yeah, none of your damn business, basically. Yeah. Um, and then he leaves and Shelly pulls out a gun and puts it in her little, everybody's got little secret hidden crime compartments in this. Yeah. Yeah. So puts it in her little secret crime compartment, uh, uh, with the bloody shirt, Leo's bloody shirt that she's holding on to. Um, we get a really good scene, I thought, of, um. Just the weird bullshit happening in the Packard household. <laughs> yeah. We got, we've got, uh, Josie, um, Josie and Catherine just like double crossing each other left, right, and center, basically. Yeah. Um, yeah. Truman goes to visit Josie. She's like, let me take you to the little secret crime vault. Uh, there were two ledgers here. Oh no, there's only one. The other one's missing. Uh, and Truman's just like, looks at it as like, this one's normal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know it instantly. Yeah. Apparently could tell just at a glance, Truman's superpower is able to read business ledgers shockingly quickly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then it's funny because we got Catherine listening in with like a, a giant like on the wall speaker thing. Yeah. Um. And then she's holding the other ledger in that moment, being like, ha, 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 ha. I'll put uh, this in my secret crime desk. Yeah, I'll put it in my other secret compartment in my crime desk. <laughs> uh, and as she's finishing that up, Pete comes in and is looking for his tackle box. Mm-hmm. And hats off to Jack Nance. Hats off to Jack Nance. He's good in this scene. Just yeah. kind of making faces, mostly. Mm-hmm. He's good at that. He's so good at it. That's basically all he did in Dune. Um, and we loved him. <laughs> Cooper, um, is hanging out at the graveyard, um, presumably just to see, does someone come by and visit like Laura after hours? And yes, Dr. Jacoby does. And Dr. Jacoby is like, Cooper, you're not going to believe this. I'm a bad man. And the two of us are like, no, it's very believable. You don't, you don't make a strong first impression, Jacoby. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or second. Or 25th. 
But then I met Laura and it changed everything. Shut the fuck up, you weirdo. <laughs> um, go, sh- go sh- sell some fucking golden shovels already. <laughs> <laughs> um, last but certainly not least, um, <clears throat> Cooper and Hawk are in the like dining room of the Great Great Northern, um, just sort of like talking about. Laura, what they think, like, you know, maybe happened to her soul. Um, Hawk, you know, native mysticism stuff that is just going to play. Welcome to Twin Peaks. Welcome to Twin Peaks. Um, he says like a bunch of quote unquote native mysticism stuff, and then it's just like, what? What I do know is that her body is in the ground. You know. Um, yeah. And then you get another iconic yeah, it's scene. Yeah, like the the body soul, the <coughs> the mind soul, and the dream soul, and yeah, yeah. Um, Cooper th- asks about the dream one. The thing is that I thought the things that Hawk were saying were actually kind of interesting. You know, unfortunately, I just think it's like it's so saddled with. Yes, I I think there is like. The, the mysticism stuff that Hawk brings to the show, I think, is really, like, I think it's really interesting. I think it adds a lot of, like, layers to what the show is doing. Unfortunately, you cannot divorce that from the awful racial baggage there, you know? Yeah. Um. But then you get the, like, like very iconic scene of Leland just, like, dancing in the dining hall and like begging somebody to dance with him. It's, you know, immediately mirroring last scene or last episode when he was dancing with the photo of Laura. Yeah. Um, Specifically begging like women. To yes. Dance with him. Yes. Um, and, and Hawk and Cooper have to like come over and like steady him and take him home basically. Mm. Um, it's just sad. You know, yeah. Uh, even knowing what he did, it is just sad to see this man so broken. Well, and the thing, and this is gonna keep. This is like a very recurring, like motif with Leland, but is like dancing and also like happy songs, and then that like breaking into, like weeping and things. Yeah, which I think is just a lot of like foreshadowing for this like weird, this internal dual. Uh, struggle that Leland is going through between like, you know, the the part of him that would kill his own daughter and do all these horrible things, and then the part of him that is like horrified at what he's done. Yeah, you know, the uh, if we are to do the the George Jones reading, so <laughs> I'll uh, probably bring up further as we we go on but that you know the bob is the one that like sings and dances and then leland is the part that cries right but also it's it's just the man yeah it's just you know the yeah. internal struggle that he's going through. yeah which you know um is interesting to sort of like take that and then watch season three of like you know um obviously like season three bob is in possession of cooper's body but like, I don't know. That's still Cooper, you know. He's still. I I think the I think the fandom is very willing to read like 
Mr. C as a different character from Cooper in a way that like contradicts reading Leland and Bob as the same guy, you know? Yeah. Um, and also like contradicts the like the whole thing with oh there's two coops but one of them is Dougie. One yeah. of them is like not actually Yeah. The person who is more Cooper throughout most of that is is Bob Cooper. Yeah, is the Bob Cooper, is the evil Coop. Yeah. Um, and and Dougie is like in fact just wholly distinct. Yes. And and, and you know not that everybody needs to have wholly internally consistent, like, readings on Twin Peaks. I just, that is a contradiction that I find interesting. And, like, why do people read Leland and Bob as the same guy versus why do people read, why do I read Bob and Leland as the same guy, but I don't read Evil Cooper as the same as Cooper, you know? Because that's not something that I, like, I am necessarily inclined to do. Um, But I think if you hold those two things in your head, you have to, like, Sort of like think about it and find some way to square them. Yeah. Um, Why is it that people are like, oh, stuff in second season, like Lynch was less involved. Um, and so that's count. why, and so that's why you get more of the stuff of like, oh, it was really Bob who was possessing Leland, but then you watch Firewalk with me and that's the truth of it where it is, it was just Leland. It's just Leland. Like Bob is just. Leland, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's just this like dark side that he is struggling with. Uh, and then David Lynch comes along and makes the return and then seems to be saying, ah, oh, let me like reassert Bob as a distinct possessive entity. Um, there's a contradiction even in that to like, it, if things like primarily written and directed by Lynch, but David Lynch, mm-hmm. Firewalk with Me, the movie, mm-hmm. and then The Return, those are like very also contradictory in terms of what Bob is. Yeah, for sure. I guess that about does it for this episode. Yeah. No, it's not. First, we have to do emails. This is totally the same recording. We're in the same space. Yeah. The audio is exactly the same. Yeah. This is literally seconds after the previous thing, because I'm responding to it. You were like, let's uh-huh. do plugs, and no, we can't do plugs yet. Yeah, we can't do plugs yet. Yeah. I and just, the, I suddenly felt a, just, sec- a real, like, second win. Yeah. I feel like I was really kind of pissed off and moody, but now, seconds later, <laughs> I feel a lot better. Yeah. I don't know why that is. <laughs> For, and this change in energy did change the sound quality a little bit, but... Yeah. Yeah. Like, it it just, like, caused a certain, like, psychic aura that has changed the resonance of the room that we're in, but... Yeah. Oh, you know what it was? It's that we had that chocolate milk bread. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I don't don't have a way in kayfabe to to explain that. (laughs) It was really good. How was your slice? I I got got the butt, which... Had a little bit more of the like crest, and you don't get as much of the soft niceness. Yeah, because um, part of what's really good about milk bread is that it's like very soft inside. I do think next time I'm gonna put butter on it. Yeah, I I liked just the plain uh, milk bread. I think 
I think a little butter is just going to give it that little zhuzh it needs, you know? Yeah. But it was pretty good. <clears throat> I liked it quite a bit. Not not chocolate, just standard milk bread. But, like, uh, in the summer, and we'll just make the standard milk bread. Uh-huh. And I'll just, like, do, like, pretty thick slices. Um, and then I'll put, like, butter. Uh, I'll toast it, and then I'll do, like, uh, actually, usually mayonnaise. Sometimes a little better. Usually mayonnaise, and I'll Ooh. do I'll do a BLT. Ooh, mayonnaise would be pretty good. It's like the best BLT bread. It's oh, incredible. I bet, I bet. You have like a nice thick slice, and you give yeah. it a good toast. Yeah. Okay, I'm gonna keep that in mind. Uh, if you do have to toast it, though, be aware that it will like toast faster than some breads because it's a little bit of a sweeter bread. Yeah. Sorry, I was just looking to double check that we were recording on the Yeti. Of course we are <laughs> recording on the Yeti because we didn't stop recording. Yeah. We, we were recording on the Yeti before. I just needed to double check that. Um, so we have one email from Juo. Hi, Ottoman Neve. Real name, no gimmicks. Yeah. Um, in light of recent events on the Export Audio Podcast Network, I compiled a list of movies and you will have to finish the discussions permanently. I'm adding that in. Permanently. No more conversation about this. Ever. Whether or not these movies are Christmas movies. Number one, Die Hard. Yes. Mm. Well, good thing I just permanently ended the discussion (laughs) by saying yeah. Mm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Die Hard is a Christmas movie. One, I think within the text of Die Hard, Die Hard is a Christmas movie. I mean, it takes place at Christmas. It's about, like, family... And, um, it has, like, a lot of, like, conservative political values that are just kind of, like, there and uncommented upon. Um, it's all the hallmarks of a Christmas movie. And, two, I have a holiday tradition of watching Die Hard, which does make it a Christmas movie. Yeah. Because Nora and I watch Star Wars on Christmas. That's a Christmas movie because we watched it on Christmas. There's nothing Christmas about Star Wars. Yeah, but I think I'm willing to, like, like Die Hard is, like, this weird edge case for me. Mm-hmm. But I think it is a Christmas movie. Mm-hmm. And I think some of it is the, like, degree to which it is a Christmas movie for people, in, in addition to some of the stuff in it that, like, makes it Christmassy. Sure. But, like... I think the fact that it is like a Christmas tradition for many people is part of what actually push, pushes it over to like, no, this is a Christmas movie. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. Makes sense. <clears throat> yeah. Anyway, uh, to me, less of a Christmas movie than one that we're going to get to later. Um, I don't know if you, I don't think you've been listening to the Paranoia Agent episodes. But... No, but I do know about the thing that you're going <laughs> to. Yeah. We'll get come to. up. We will get there. <laughs> Number two, Constantine, 2005. I've not seen this film, actually. I have not either. Christmas movie? Uh, neither of us seen it. So I'm going no, to... Here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my due diligence. Constantine, 2005. Um, Superhero horror movie. Christmas. Uh, so Christ appears. Yeah. Christ appears repeatedly. No mention of Christmas. I'm gonna Santa. No Santa. Uh, try Yule. Try Yule. Okay, Yule. Here. I don't think we're gonna get it, but I know. No. I'm gonna uh, try Lucifer. We do have Lucifer. Okay. Okay. I'm gonna try Mammon real quick. Oh, we've got the Mammon machine. 
We do not. Um, honestly, because I'm seeing stuff about like Christ being uh, pierced with a, a spear and stuff, kind of seems like more of an Easter movie. Yeah, let's say let's say Constantine 2005. <laughs> it was neither of us seen, but we will accept as an Easter movie. Came out in February, which is like right before like Lent starts, you know. Yeah, getting into the mood. Yeah, yeah. Um, why did it come out two weeks early in Paris? <laughs> probably that was probably at some like festival or something. What what film festival was like Constantine? That's what we need. There was lots of film festivals. Some would have something like Constantine. <laughs> Constantine premiering at Cannes. Get it? Get it? Constantine? Yeah. Canistantine? Yeah, Canistantine. Um, all right, Dragon Ball, the Tree of uh, the Tree of Might, I believe, is the title. Uh, I haven't seen a, a single Dragon Ball movie. Uh, I gotta refresh myself on which one is which. <clears throat> Tree of Might. Um, M, I'm sorry. I don't really care about Dragon Ball. Uh, so, hi everybody. If you are interested in co-hosting a film podcast, um, you would need to start on episode five of Twin Peaks, but I'm, I'm interested, I'm shopping around for a new host. I'm not committing to anything, but you know, um, Tree of Might is a movie that I have seen many times because I had a DVD of it, and back in the day, back when, um, like my mom would... Because because my mom lived in Kansas City, her husband lived in Phoenix for some time, um, and we so we would go on road trips like somewhat regularly, like at least every summer, and sometimes for a holiday, we would go on a road trip out to Phoenix, you know. And so we had a little portable DVD player. It was like probably you know like eight inches by eight inches, um, and I remember putting Tree of Might into that bad boy many times. Yeah. Um. I'm going to say Tree of Might, not a Christmas movie. So, Mike Jenner, I, I'll trust you if you think that something in here is a Christmas movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think my general feeling on this is that I, like, I don't think any of these are necessarily Christmas movies, unless they, like, very specifically are. Um, but I'll be, I would be willing to concede that, like, like, they're just parts of, like, uh, Central and South America that just go fucking nuts for Dragon Ball. And if any of those countries, like, want it to be a Christmas movie, it's fine. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, you know, if yeah. Peru is just, like, Goku is Santa Claus, <laughs> like, hell yeah. <laughs> I, would, I would believe it. Um... I saw a tweet today. The number of taco shops that I've been to in the 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 U.S. Uh huh. With Goku somewhere in that taco shop. Yeah, yeah. I I remember I remember telling you about Goku Donuts back in St. Louis. Yeah. I forget what it was actually called, but it was a donut shop that had Goku <clears throat> merch everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Um. There's a great uh, Goku taqueria in in Chicago. Actually, I don't know if they're still open. So I'm going to say we our next three movies, Tree of Might, Super Android 13, Return of Cooler, none of those are Christmas movies. Now you and I, you you are a Yule person more yeah. than you are a Christmas person. And you sort of brought me around to your way of thinking in large part, you know? 
In part because Yule I can celebrate as a season more than Christmas as a day. <laughs> oh, yeah. I was like, what do you mean by my way of thinking? But Just celebrating Yule more than Christmas. Also, yeah. you know, Chris, Christmas has like a long and weird history, and Yule has like a much longer, much weirder history, but complimentary. <laughs> yeah. Um, and also like a lot of Christmas traditions were just... Yes. They were Yule traditions, and then they're like, well, if we're going to convert these, like, heathens, we got to, like, let them still celebrate their huge party. There's also some Saturnalia stuff in there, but, um, <clears throat> God, but there's, there's so much Yule. Um, anyway. <clears throat> but yeah, because, so for those who are unfamiliar with one of the main distinctions... Yule starts on uh, the winter solstice and goes for 12 days. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the end of that, within like the, the old calendar stuff, that would be the beginning of the new year. Mm-hmm. Uh, the current Gregorian calendar is basically based around this. Sometimes it works out where uh, winter solstice falls on a different day, like on the yeah. 20th or something, or the 22nd. But like literally like probably until I'm dead now. Mm-hmm. Uh, until there's like a weird because a lot of this actually comes from like, leap years usually mess it up but otherwise it's fine leap years don't even really mess it up it's the some of the stuff that w- where they have to like shift it even more because scientists figured out additional things and they changed the calendar okay but like basically the original gregorian calendar is based around like still doing that yule thing mm-hmm. where the the 21st is still like if you do 12 days from that you get to the the first of January. Okay. Um, and so that stuff's based around it, but then they made it the 25th, so it's slightly different. So it's like in the middle of the party. Right. But it's not like, let's not do it on the 21st. Let's not do it on the day. Let's do it a little bit later. Anyway, the reason I brought this up is that... Also, not- there's this whole bar of symbology, because Yule is about the sun is coming back. Like, winter solstice has happened, now the days are getting longer. We are celebrating the fact that the days are getting longer. That, like, winter's... This is, like, the, the beginning of, like, winter moving away again. Yeah. Um, and so then that just gets adopted of, like, oh, Christ is born and brings light to the world. Right. Basically. Right. Anyway, so you bring this up. I bring this up because not that I think that Christ is an essential component of the holiday season. I think there are many, many, many reasons that one might observe Christmas or, or you know, winter holidays that have nothing to do with Christ. Yeah. However, I do not believe that Jesus Christ exists within the universe of Dragon Ball. I do not think that... I do not no, think it's just that... just Goku. <laughs> <laughs> and furthermore, I know Christmas is about the birth of Christ, but if Christ did exist in Dragon Ball... It would be way less impressive that he was brought back from the dead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, like, uh, Goku died for your sins like eight times. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Uh, now, the fourth movie in, in this little succession here that we have is... Well, the Dra- fourth of the Dragon Ball movies. Yes, is Dragon Ball Mystical Adventure. Now, that is a Dragon Ball movie. The other three, Tree of Might, Super Android 13, The Return of Cooler. Um, also, those are all movies... So, Tree of Might, Super Android 13, Return of Cooler. Those are all Dragon Ball Z movies that are about, like, new villains 
um, revenging people that Goku killed, basically. And I don't really think that, like, revenge is, like, a, is a holiday, like... <laughs> I don't really think about Christmas as a time to reflect upon how I yeah. want to seek vengeance against my enemies. <laughs> um, but Dragon Ball Mystical like, Adventure... Mabon, maybe. I mean, that's, that's like, <laughs> you know, earlier, but... Dragon Ball Mystical Adventure, that is a Dragon Ball movie. That is a child Goku movie. I have not seen it. I have very little experience with, like, Goku as a young man. Um... So I really can't comment. Maybe that is a Christmas movie. Maybe that's the one here uh, that is the Christmas movie. Yeah. And then seventh, last on Zhuo's list, Tokyo Godfathers. Yeah, so people aren't listening to Ghost Divers. Uh, so we did Paranoia Agent and uh, our guest, Josh, claims that Tokyo Godfathers is not a Christmas movie. Which is fucking insanity (laughs) and the most that i can suss out like his argument is that he likes it and (laughs) thinks that it's about other things other than christmas and i'm like okay one lots of christmas movies are about things other than christmas Uh uh-huh namely family yeah also the baby is saved by a christmas miracle yes like, one, it's about family in this, like, way that's a little bit more interesting than some Christmas movies are. Yes. You can't but just it say- is about family in the way that Christmas movies are. But it's also specifically about, like, uh, a miracle child that's saved by a Christmas miracle that is, like, tied to, because of the the characters, you have this trans woman who is, like, the stand-in for the, like... The virgin who has the baby. Right. Um, not that she hasn't had sex, but, like, she can't have a baby. Yeah. And so that's, like, the stand-in that she has. That yeah. She has is, this connection to that this is, idea of, like, a virgin Mary. That, to, to the connect, a connection to the immaculate conception. Yes. You know? Yeah. Um, I don't actually know what immaculate means. I only ever hear that word in... Um, yeah. Perfectly clean, neat, or tidy. So I, yeah. I guess I just, I thought, I guess I thought before I googled it that well, immaculate so, meant like impro, like impossible. You know? No, it's like immaculate would normally be like, you know, perfectly clean or whatever. Okay. In the like religious sense, that is that cleanness means like free from sin, mm-hmm. and so the idea of the immaculate conception is that she conceives. Without the sin of having sex, basically. Right. That, like, sex is a thing that is dirty, but she gets pregnant without it. And so it is immaculate, it is clean. Mm-hmm. She is free of that sin. Mm-hmm. Um, Which, a lot of loaded stuff going on in there, but anyway. <laughs> anyway. Um, we are simply not here to uh, litigate um, Christianity. <laughs> uh, Christianity's views on sex and women. <laughs> yeah. That is simply not within the jurisdiction of this podcast. There's a... Uh, it's going to be a really long time until we get to it, but there there's a great moment in um, the... Uh, Hemskringla. I, I got into like a different mind. So uh, one of the, the books that we're going to read on Around the Long Fire... 
is this like big accounting of all the kings of Norway up until that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a bunch of sagas in there, but there's this one in like one of the biggest, most famous sagas from that. Um, there's this one scene where uh, it's like one of the first ones, one of the first kings to convert to Christianity. And he's trying to get uh, this woman to be his wife. Um, and she's like very specifically like, no, if I become Christian, like then within like Christian faith, I have to submit to you, but I'm a fucking queen. Like if yeah. we were pagans, we could do this. Right. But like, you want me to be Christian or you want me to like live with your Christian part. That means that like, I now have to become subservient to you in a way that is not how uh-huh. like our stuff is fully organized right now. Yeah. Um, which is just a great moment. Yeah. I do, I do just quickly want to say, um, I hope I have not said anything rude to any Christian listeners. Um, I, I have a very on again, off again relationship to Christianity myself. Um, I have a very off again relationship. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm, I'm just poking fun because... Um, I do think it is important to, like, recognize, like, there are lots of people who celebrate that time of year that are not Christian. (laughs) Yeah. And, and, you you know, Christmas is a concept very close to my heart, but I I do just really want to, like, decouple that concept from, um, you know, the birth of Christ, necessarily. Yeah. Anyway... Once again, and we're getting... if if you take issue with decoupling Christmas from the birth of Christ, um, maybe don't steal a holiday that wasn't about the birth of Christ. <laughs> yeah, like, that's my perspective. <laughs> anyway, that's questions. Um, I wanted to say one other quick sort of digression thing, and then we can uh, go do plugs and wrap it up. Okay. Um. So. On this podcast that, as you know, we were just recording moments ago. Yeah. Um, we haven't stopped recording. No time has been... No time. No time has elapsed. No time has elapsed from... Beyond the time that you, the listener, have actively listened to. Yes. Yes. Um, uh, <laughs> stupid. We do a really stupid podcast. Uh, what the fuck was I going to say? Oh. <laughs> On the podcast today, I said like rude things about anime. It was it was purely coming from I felt rude and moody in my heart moments ago. Yeah, and now that I've had the chocolate milk bread, my uh, the my moodiness and my rudeness about anime has yeah. passed. Um, during the pee break, we actually we went and watched the first episode of War in the Pocket, and I was like, yeah. actually, anime is good. Yeah. Um. <laughs> And then you immediately started downloading Turn A legally. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know that I'm going to watch that. But I am interested enough that I did start downloading it. Yeah. I don't really want to. Okay. Here's the thing that I was sort of too grumpy to actually articulate earlier. Is that anime is cool conceptually. I have not often been in the headspace lately for I am going to watch 20 minutes of a subtitled thing. It is for some reason, subtitled and animated. It is like for some reason easier for me and my like attention span the last few months 
last few years, let's say, to watch 45 minutes of people running around in silly costumes on HBO or or whatever. You know, yeah. your Star Treks, your Titans. That that just is like very digestible to me. That, that's Digestible is the right word. That is very like, I could watch one more Titans. I could watch one more Titans. Yeah. In a way that like for some reason, whenever I've tried to watch anime recently, I'm like, I gotta like get myself in the mood to watch anime. I gotta like work myself up to... Yeah, being in the right headspace for it, you know. Me churning, and this is like me churning through 0079 and Zeta is partially like this is the thing that I can watch during work because I have the dub on. Uh huh. And I, I would not just, I just could not do that with subtitles. Yeah. But also, part of it is like if I didn't have a toddler or a job and I could just sit and watch stuff all day, I still probably would not churn through it at the same rate with subtitles mm-hmm. because there's just a like greater level of engagement. Like you have to like be actively reading the whole time. Mm-hmm. You have to be like looking at the screen, reading the entire time. Yeah, and trying to like read and and take what you're reading and like uh, pairing it with what you're hearing and seeing. Yeah. Um, like it, subtitles are a thing that is like, just generally like a little bit more taxing, I guess. Yeah. Of a, of a watching experience where, uh, sometimes you can then go, well, I'm going to watch like a, a three hour Japanese movie. And that's, yeah. that still takes a bit out of you, but one often dialogue is a little bit short, like a little there's not quite as much dialogue, I feel like, sometimes. Yeah, in, there's a in... there's a density to a lot of anime mm-hmm. because you have 20 minutes to tell, like, this chapter of the story, you know? Yeah, so there's, like, less silence. Yeah, to where at least the, the, the films I have a taste for often have, like, this, like, you know, room to breathe, you know? Yeah, and then also it's a thing of, like, you know... Even if it's three hours, like, I I will maybe watch this tonight or split it over two nights and I'm done, rather than I'm committing myself to, like, 50 episodes of this. Yeah. <clears throat> That's the big reason I don't want to, like, commit to turn A right now. We So you were explaining some of the, like, uh, the design of the mech, the turn A gun now. Yeah, because also during our pee break, uh, I finished building my master grade turn A. Yeah, it was a really shockingly productive pee break, which is also shocking because I recall that you were like vamping while waiting for me to come back. I mean, there was some time in there where you were still peeing. Uh Uh-huh. And I went and I was doing some other stuff and then I came and you were still peeing. You just peed for a really, really... (laughs) And then I I vamped a little bit at the end. So there's still going to be like some stuff put in there. I didn't yeah. vamp straight through. Yeah. Um I'm going to keep it real with you. I I actually had to poop during that pee break. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. You didn't There was this morning. Uh-huh. Uh which was the morning of all the other recording that you Yeah. <laughs> uh I woke up and I just I peed for like 3 minutes. I don't. Bruh. I had to pee. I had to pee so bad, and I just pee like. I think like when you have to pee that much, like it doesn't come out fast. Remember, you know? remember before we hit record, and I was like, I'm gonna set a little 15 minute timer, and then I was like, yeah. No, I'm not gonna do that. And now we're talking about like all sorts of bodily functions on this. Like, like <laughs> one minute ago, 
You said you said like something something something. I came something something something, and I was like gonna make an immature joke and decided not to. And now we're just like recounting stories of peeing and pooping. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so where, where can people find you online? You can find me on Twitter <laughs> at autumnal underscore coffee. You can find me on co-host at autumnal. You can go to exportodd.io. That'll take you to the Patreon page for this podcast. Um, where on the main landing page you can find links to all the free feeds. You can subscribe there. You can send those to your friends if you've got a friend who's really into anime. You can send them into Ghost Divers if you got a friend who really likes Batman. You can send them Gotham City Limits. Um, <clears throat> you have a friend who really likes uh, weird abs- abstract humor that sometimes talks about a manga. You can send him a pondering futon. For $1 a month, you can get access to early access to a bunch of our shows. This podcast, Gotham City Limits, Hot Singles, and Pondering Puton. And for $5 a month, you get two podcasts now. That's right, two. Count them two. Two. So, um, obviously, you get Pop Town Funk. We just did a fucking fantastic episode of Pop Town Funk with Molly about Toy Story 4, which is a dog shit movie. Dog shit. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I must not have logged that on my letterbox, because when we did the spreadsheet for the movies earlier, I didn't put it in there at all. So I must have forgotten. Were there stairs? There were not stairs, to my recollection. Okay. Um, not a lot of stairs in the trailer. No. No. Um, there might have been stairs. There's definitely a lot of, like, vertical movement, you know? Yeah. In our in our sort of loose definition that we have sometimes applied. Anyway, um... <laughs> Sorry to disrail you. So you get Pop Down Funk. It's you a journey get Pop Down Funk. And then this week... I will be launching a brand new podcast. Podcast number two. Podcast number two. That you get for $5. Sort of. So here's how it's called Coffee and Comic Books. On the Patreon feed for free, there is an episode zero where we sort of set out like what the podcast is. It's basically like abnormal mapping, but for comic books. Um, That podcast is going to come out twice a month. Now, uh, there will be one free episode and I'll put that in the Patreon feed for everybody's convenience, but it'll also be in its own separate like feed with its own RSS. So if you don't want to pay for pop, if you don't want to pay the five dollar tier, you can just go subscribe to that Coffee and Comic Books free feed. And the second episode each month will be Patreon exclusive at the five dollar tier. So um, we've recorded two episodes so far. Our first one, um, well, we've recorded three, I guess, because there's the episode zero that's out. But like. The episode on here that is coming out this week, um, that'll be free. And then after that, our second November episode will be um, uh, exclusive to the $5 patrons. That'll come out on Thursdays. I'm not going to say, like, which Thursdays that's going to come out. But, like, two Thursdays a month, you will get coffee and comic books. I'm not really setting dates for that one because... um, the, the the recording schedule has been a little malleable. We're we're basically recording every two weeks so far, but you know, I'm just gonna give myself some wiggle room to like oh, this month we had two episodes early, and this month we had two episodes late, you know? Yeah. But uh two episodes a month, one one for free, one for patrons. That is the longest pitch I will ever do for that. 
uh, I will ever do for that because it's launching this week for the first time. And I imagine there is a good deal of like crossover between the audience for this and the audience for that. I will try to tighten up that plug going forward. So, um, also on Thursdays, also on Thursdays, I have a different podcast on a different network. Yes, you do. You want to talk about where people fi- can find you online and find that podcast? Yeah, so you can find me at Fox Omnia <laughs> on uh, Twitter and co-host. Mm-hmm. Who knows if Twitter will still exist when people hear this podcast in a few days. Um, I'm sure it will. Here's I don't the thing. think it's folding that fast. Here's the thing I'm thinking, I keep thinking about. Is like, in my head, Twitter was going to be the forever platform. You know, I hadn't thought about that consciously, but in my head, it was like Twitter had been around. I'd been on Twitter for so long that it felt like Twitter was just going to be a forever platform. But like, you know, uh, LiveJournal emerged and died. MySpace emerged and died. Uh, Facebook emerged and then we all left it. (laughs) Instagram, same thing. Social media companies have life cycles, and maybe we're just getting to the end of the the Twitter life cycle. Um, and all the all the doom saying about Twitter has just been weird to me because, like, we've all been through this a couple times now. Like, we all yeah. left. Like, everybody I know was on Tumblr and left Tumblr. At, at various different times, some people left when they took the porn away. Some people left earlier. Some people left later. But, like, we all left Tumblr, and it turned out fine. Yeah. Leaving Twitter will turn out fine, too. <laughs> yeah. And maybe I, that'll be this week. Maybe it'll be two years from now. I think part of the doomsaying, though, is um, in a way that I think just feels truly different than, like, I don't Like, I always just felt like Facebook was already the place where, like, your friends are there, but also your mom Mm-hmm. For like a really long time, not at the very beginning, but like for yeah. a long time. Yeah. Um, and and Twitter was sometimes kind of that, but I f- I feel like like my mom never really got she got a Twitter and never used it. Yeah, and stuff like that. Um, it just like never had that same like hit where compared to some other stuff, and like Tumblr was just not set up to like really be friends with people in the same way. Right. I think some of the doom saying is that like. People found ways to use Twitter where it's like, this is just like, my friends are on here. And we yes. just talk. Yes. Like, the way that I basically use Twitter at this point is, it's like a giant group chat. Yeah. Where it's like, all my friends are in there. But also, they're in there with all of their friends. Uh-huh. But I don't have to see, like, I, I sometimes can. Because we are, you and but I. But I generally don't have to see... Like, they're friends that I'm not friends with. But we're all posting to, like, our friends. Yeah. But then you are only seeing your friends, and it's just, like, the perfect way for a giant group chat to work. Yes. Because you and I use our locked accounts far, far more than... Yeah. Um, I don't look at me. No. I, I I post there. I sometimes think I should be better about posting, like, jokes and stuff to get more engagement, but... Here's the... Uh, uh, that leads me to my other, like, Twitter, like, everybody, like, doomsaying about Twitter, is that, like, I I think for myself, and I imagine for other people, but I don't want to, like, project this onto other people. 
But for me, Twitter has, like, monopolized my attention and the way that I use the internet for probably a decade now. You know, for for other friends of mine, longer than a decade, you know, Um, I feel like I was late to Twitter, quote unquote, compared to some people I know, Um, just by virtue of being a little younger than some people I know. Um, All that to say that, like, Twitter has made it very easy for Twitter in the way that capital so often does close has closed off my imagination to how the Internet can be. You know, yeah. Twitter has made me think, ah, websites have all gone away. We all just use the one website. You know, Twitter, Twitter has, has just so totally dominated all, all possibilities of what the internet could be for me. And, you know, Twitter will die and I will still continue to use the internet, you know? Yeah. Or... Maybe I'll you fucking use the internet less. <laughs> Maybe we'll just be free. And thank God for small favors. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've been on Twitter for 14 years. Yeah, that sounds about right. I don't know when I first got on Twitter because that's like an account that doesn't exist anymore. But I would guess I got on Twitter. Um, I would guess I got on it in like my second year of high school. So like 2011. Okay. Yeah, that would be my guess. <clears throat> um so anyway thursdays around the long fire yeah a different show on a different network uh so the show is around the long fire the network is abnormal mapping mm-hmm. um sister network i guess i would say that's how i usually describe it mm-hmm. i don't know why i choose that i i have also chosen that though i think i started yeah. i think i coined the phrase that we're the little sister network to abnormal mapping i don't know that i coined that phrase but i feel like i did yeah um it was me and, or m one of yeah. us so it's me and m uh-huh. doing uh around the long fire uh we are reading sagas um we are reading <clears throat> icelandic sagas in the broad sense not in the narrow sense of specifically like Islandic sagas, mm-hmm. um, which is, is like a, a term within it about specifically like the Icelanders. Right. Um, also called family sagas in English sometimes. Um, but I mean, we're going to be reading a lot of those because there's a good bulk of them. Um, and I think that's where some of the like narrative forms really developed. Um, so we're going to have some like, like I'm excited from we get to some of the books that I just think are like actually good stories like the people writing it are starting to think about writing like a, a book like writing a story right like a, a proto novel is emerging yeah. we're not there yet right now we're at a collection of myths that a dude wrote that wrote down, right um that are all kind of related and he's trying to structure into like a, a a plot thing um but um yeah so we're starting with uh and we've done two chapters already or two uh episodes already um but we're starting with uh velsunga saga which is uh you know mm-hmm. like fully legendary uh people probably know seerther and the slaying of the serpent falvnir those are like the the big things uh but you get a bunch of shit before that and it's been fun you've been listening i've been listening i um 
I'm going to keep it real with you. Sometimes it's a little hard to parse, like, what's happening. That doesn't matter to me nearly so much as, like, you and M have a good rapport, a good banter, and, like, just hearing you react to stuff, even when I lack the full context of what it is you're reacting to, just... I think you two bring a really good energy to the podcast that can carry me through without having done done the reading. Yeah. You know? It's well, not like a the, comedy podcast, but it's like these two people hanging out, being friends, talking about this thing that they both read. And we do joke around sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. There are jokes. It's not a comedy podcast like Putan. Yeah. Um, I'm excited for when we get the things that all have more like capital T themes for us to dig into. Uh-huh. Like, I think we've touched on it a little bit with Volsunga Saga, um, where we've talked a little bit about, like, the approach to fatalism that exists mm-hmm. um, in this and, like, how it's distinct from, like, Greco-Roman stuff. Um, but I'm sure we'll, like, when we get to Nyala, I'm going to have, like, things to say about, like, the construction of statehood and... Uh, like legal systems and things like that. Right. Because that is like, that is one of the ones that feels like a proto novel. It is about like a state failing and like the failure of a state Mm -hmm. at a time when like statehood does not exist, like nationhood does not exist back then. Right. Yeah. There's not a concept. There are countries, there are not nations. Right. There are not states in this way. Yeah. But in Iceland, there's this like proto idea of a nation or a state forming. Right. Because of how like isolated they are. I mean, there's still lots of connection with the outside world, but they are like far away. They are on an island. They are doing a different government system that has never been done before. And they are developing ideas about how they are distinct from the rest of the like Norse world mm-hmm. and also how their system failed. And all of that is like this weird beginning idea of like what a nation is and like what laws are in like a, a sense that feels more modern than a lot of stuff from that period. And that's what's like exciting to me about it. Yeah. So I'm gonna have a lot to talk about there, but right now it's like, man, Seerthor sure is just like fully knows his fate and marching forward into it. One of the things that I really enjoy about the ranged touch podcast, your just King things, your game study, study buddies is that Michael as a Shakespearean, um, uh, is like familiar. If you so, if you go to the Wikipedia page for novel, right? Yeah, you get like seven paragraphs just at the top, like trying to define a novel, and you get just from these like seven paragraphs. This is a thorny issue. There's a mm. lot of disagreement about what is a novel. When did the novel emerge? You know, does yeah. this count? Does that count? Etc. Um, and. A thing I really enjoy about Range Touch podcasts is that Michael brings this in sometimes where it's relevant. Um, That's just like a a thing that I was not aware of before I started listening to those podcasts that I've become aware of now. Um, So listening to the first episode of Around the Long Fire and realizing, oh, Nia is going to like bring bring in that sort of conversation about what is a novel like. And when, and when do we feel like what we're reading has changed into a novel? Yes. And, and like, the, the reasons this is such a thorny issue is that you get into, like, concepts of, like, identity and nationhood and, and like, 
what is canon and what is not canon and who decides those things and all this sort of stuff. Um, so when I was listening to the first episode of Around the Long Fire and realized, oh, that this is secretly going to be a podcast that includes all that stuff that I find interesting over in these other podcasts, but you have just a different perspective. Yeah. I got really excited about that part. Yeah. Um, and obviously, like, M also a person who reads a bunch of classics, different classics than what you're really invested in, but, like, reads a bunch of, like, um, I remember them mentioning the Tale of Genji. They they did a whole um, Three Kingdoms podcast. Um, you two just are able to, like, talk about those things and make those things, like, interesting and accessible to, like, a person, me, who has, like, no familiarity with this. If you asked me when I thought novels started, like, a year ago, I would have been like, I don't know, when the printing press got invented is when we started writing novels, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, Don, Qu- like a, Don Quixote was like the first novel, right? I think. Yeah, there there is like a very uh, there's like a very there's a concept of novel that is like I, I would say like very limited. Yeah, definition that's like what other people would say is the modern novel. Yes, right. Um, but and then there's some stuff where I'm like, this is a novel, or maybe it's a proto novel in that like. This idea of a novel has not emerged. Uh-huh. In the same way that, like, I think Iceland at this time is developing a sense of nation, but the, like, word nation doesn't exist. Right, the, yeah. The theory around it doesn't exist, but that stuff is rising out of something that has already happened. Right. You know? These things get... Trans people existed before trans right. was a word. Right. Uh, there's other ways to talk about it, and but those things still, like, happened. And I think, like, nationhood developed in Iceland in a way that was distinct from what like was happening in Sweden and Norway and Denmark at the time. There's an essay I read once for college and I've never been able to find it again. Cause I'd love to reread it and see, I read it in like some like film theory class when I was like a junior in college and kind of just like bounced off it really hard, but it stuck with me. I, and I wish I could find it again to reread it because I'd be interested. Um, but the thing, the sort of like premise of this essay was, um, how am I want to, how do I want to say this? That like homosexuals did not exist or like gay people did not exist as such until like the emergence of like the nuclear family in, um, like 20th century like post-world war ii capitalism and the argument the argument being made is that like there are plenty of people throughout history um who engaged in like homosexual behavior but that like those those people were viewed in so many different ways and so many different like um this is taboo in this in this society at this time and now it's not taboo in this society at that time you know all these sorts of things so that like defining homosexuals as a class before say like or as a as a demographic before say 1950 in the eyes of this writer um is, is not useful and you can only talk about like gay people existing like in post-world war ii like capitalism you know 
And I think that's absurd. I think that's an absurd thing to yeah. say. In the same way, I, I bring all this up. But, but also, like, there... So, like, a thing that we talk about that comes up briefly in in an episode of Around the Long Fire is this idea of ergi. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way that you can, like, most directly translate it is basically, like, uh, unmanliness mm-hmm. or something. And within that construction... Certain homosexual acts, what we would call homosexual acts, are ergi and some aren't. Mm-hmm. And basically, it's tops aren't, bottoms are. Yes. And it because it's specifically around this, like, gender dynamic of these are the expectations of a man. A man, like, puts his penis in things but does not have a penis put in him. Mm-hmm. You know? Right. That is That is a woman position. And so to, like, to be fucked by a man is... To, like, take on a female position. And so that is what is taboo, rather than, like, the actual homosexual coupling. Mm. It's not the, like, sex itself. It's the specific position you are. And it's because of, like, the gendered position of it. And so I bring this up because um, I think there is, like, an impulse that many people feel to, like, sort of limit discussion to, like a certain very recent time frame that gay yeah. people have only existed since the fifties or that the novel has the concepts of the novel have only existed since Don Quixote and yeah. the printing press. You know, I think that's a very easy thing for a lot of people to do. Um, and that is like a thing much, much like, you know, there are lots of different like people who celebrate, the like Christmas time or, or the winter holidays that is not tied to Christmas. Like, I just think that like closing off discussions like that and saying only these things count only like European yeah. novels count only, you know, gay people in, in, you know, 20th century America, 21st century America, only, um, you know, Christmas holidays. Like, I just think that you and I think that those things are like really like, Problematic. Yeah. <laughs> well, and also it's a thing of like part of the the definition of novel where the printing press is where it starts is about like <clears throat> and there there's some value in it because there's a certain like when the printing press exists <clears throat> it becomes far easier to make large quantities of books. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then it's still a thing that is like the pastime of the the literate middle and upper classes right where you have the leisure time to sit and read something on your own mm-hmm. where <clears throat> there are enough books that people can get it and read it in a solitary act rather than in a communal act mm. but also part of the thing that's happening with the novel is the ability to like have many people reading the same thing but like separate it out mm. but if you look at the sagas there's an extreme like history of lots of copying we have multiple copies of stuff because people would copy them down by hand not with a printing press <clears throat> and then it was most likely read like along around a fire like you would be like I, we can't work right now it's fucking winter the right. sun is fucking down right we what we can do is we can sit here and process wool and so we're all in this room and we're processing wool together and then someone would read the book to entertain right. everybody that is still more communal than another sense of the novel right <clears throat> but also there's a certain reproduction where then all across different farms on iceland everyone is reading these same books right you know 
And that's like a thing that we still <clears throat> see when I and this is this is a thing across many universities across America. My freshman year of um, college, you know, at orientation or, or when I got accepted, they're like, hey, here's the like, here's the book this year. Like, and um, I can't I, uh, I can't remember the name of the book, actually. It was written by an author who taught at the University of Kansas and it had sunflowers on the cover and it took place in Kansas. But Lord, I cannot remember the name of it. I quite liked it. Anyway, um, the, there's the common book, you know, that was, the, the common book. Thank God I could finally fucking remember the phrase. Yeah. Like, there was a common book every year that KU would do. And, like, you know, to sort of the idea, and I don't know that it ever worked, but the idea was to foster a sense of community of, like, we all read this book and we were all, we all sort of have a, like, place to start discussions from. You know, the the city of Chicago has a common book this year, or at the very least, the Chicago yeah, Public year, Libraries. Yeah, I mean, I think it's done by the libraries, but it's like the city of Chicago's book of the year or whatever. Yeah. Which the, this year is Mouse, the comic. Yeah. Um, I should reread Mouse. Yeah. If only I had a podcast where I could get someone to do that with me. <laughs> um, Have Emily on? No, she would hate She would hate being on a podcast that much. I, I actually... She's at the point where she's fine occasionally popping in and guesting for something, but... Mm-hmm. I, um... I'd really like to read Mouse. I don't know that I'd like to discuss it on a podcast. I guess I should mull that over. I should just reread it and then decide if I want to talk about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, we're so far afield and we've recorded for 50 minutes now. We're just like this. No, we've recorded for however... Do the math, however, quickly. No! How long did we record last time? I mean, this time. Okokoro is real. Okokoro is real.
white on white translucent black capes back on the rack Bella Lugos is dead The bats have left the bell tower The victims have been bled Red velvet lines The black box Bella Lugos is dead
Hi listeners, welcome to the non-homophobia zone. Um, let's just talk for like five minutes about like the 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 harried mental health state of the <laughs> of the ornate stairwells duo right now. <laughs> we don't. You don't have to get it. I'm not gonna make you talk about anything. I know you. You're feeling a little low. My brain's bad. Your brain's bad. You don't have to talk about that if you don't want to. I did spring this on you. I just wanted to complain for a minute. Um, okay. I feel low energy. Um, Some of this is going to come up on the podcast proper in a minute. But, like, I was very frustrated this week because, like, I've had a lot of job instability, as I've talked about. Um... I'm making a huge change with my job. I start. I basically started a new job this week. Basically, same you know. company, but like yeah, yeah, new role, new place, all <clears throat> nine yards. Um, Wait, do you like officially have the other role? No, they're just gonna make me do that work. <laughs> you should get paid for that. No, they will not. They will invite me into impromptu meetings um, to just sort of like rap about the state of affairs in the store, get my input on how we can, like, improve operations, but they will not be paying me to, you know, perform the role that I told them I'm interested in performing. They should pay you. Yeah. Anyway. I have had a very frustrating week as far as, like, my ability to do my job of podcasting goes because, like... Like, yesterday, I booted up Vampire Survivors. I played that for, like, hours. Can't talk about that on a podcast. It's just a clicker game. I'm just playing Cookie Clicker, basically. Okay, but Cookie Clicker owns. Yeah, Vampire Survivors owns. Cookie Clicker is my favorite clicker game. Vampire Survivors is very good. Different thing, but kind of basically a clicker. Um, Don't really have anything to say about that on a podcast. Tried reading some comics... My brain was just kind of on fire. I I picked, like, three different things I wanted to read, read, like, three pages of each, and was like, fuck comics. I don't want to read comics right now. Fuck this. Tried playing more Silent Hill 3. Really enjoying Silent Hill 3. Could only pay attention for about 20 minutes before I, my brain was just like, fuck Silent Hill 3. I don't want to play Silent Hill 3 right now. <laughs> um, tried picking a movie to watch. Spent like 20 minutes scrolling, just decided to put on Titans because my brain could just handle Titans right now. And it, this is all normal stuff. The, everybody has these weeks, you know, or, or at the very least, I'm very familiar with this type of week where I'm like sort of trying to force myself into one hobby, but my brain just kind of wants to do the like minimum brain power hobby. Yeah. It is just making me nuts um, for the purposes of doing this podcast. Because <laughs> even even if it was like I watched zero movies, I think that is better than like, you know, what we, what we are going to talk about soon, but what listeners will have already heard, which is that I barely watched any of these movies that I watched, you know? Mm. I was like sitting there playing Vampire Survivors while movie was happening to me. That's a really frustrating way for me to like be right now (laughs) and i just wanted to just like get all the like 
toxic negative energy of that out of my system before we like start the podcast proper and I can be like, oh yeah, you know, that's how I sound. Yeah. (laughs) I just needed to, I needed to like spew a little bit and now I can do the podcast like regular. Yeah. Um, this is not true. Like, <clears throat> there have been great reactions to uh, Around the Long Fire in the Discord. Uh-huh. But also the part of my brain that's like, I'm doing four podcasts now, but I'm not getting more validation from that. <laughs> I want four times <laughs> as much validation. <laughs> um, and, like, we are getting good reactions in the Discord. Yeah. But... I listened to episode zero and one. Episode one and one and two. I I listened to episode. I wanted in my heart it's zero and one, but M put their foot down. They're like, we're not doing this. We're well, not having a Twin Peaks situation. The way that the like podcast, uh, you know, host or what, whatever you, whatever Pinecast is, yeah, they're equivalent. They do it on Squarespace. Squarespace. Um, but it's like forced our intro as episode one. So episode two is the first like actual episode of the podcast. Well, I listened to episodes. But they one don't want a Twin Peaks situation. I listened to episodes one and two and I thought they were lovely. I didn't have much input. I just thought that you two have a great rhythm and I barely followed like what you were talking about. I just thought that you two just like do a good job of talking about it, you know? Yeah, episode two was kind of rough because my internet was just shit during uh-huh. it, but yeah, it'll be fine. Um, we episode had, three was good. We've had weeks where like I've barely understood Connor for like a whole half hour of Ghost Divers, and I don't think the audience noticed. <laughs> I know, I know, it was different at the end of um, um, Long Fire where you two were just like cross talking a bunch, but there's been, there's been times where it's like. I can tell Connor's talking. I haven't heard what he said in like five minutes. I'm just going to like play it cool when I can't hear him again. It'll turn out fine. <laughs> I feel like usually Ghost Divers has good audio. Yeah. No, Ghost Divers has good audio. I mean, has good like for us, like when we were recording good connection. Yes. There. I feel like <clears throat> at this point, my like ISP knows when I record, like maybe, f- maybe Wednesdays will get better because it will know that I record Wednesdays <laughs> and will give me the good internet then. Mm-hmm. But cause usually we record stairwell or uh, we record ghost divers on Saturdays, but like you up until this point were working then. Yeah. Now your schedule is different. Who knows? Maybe it could work. Um, that's the, I was talking to my therapist about this. (laughs) The one thing I'm trying to hold on to, I feel very, very good about with my new job in my new, like everything changed. They finally, after two years have given me the schedule I have been asking them for. And I don't know how long it's going to last, but I'm going to enjoy it for the next month while I know it does. And I kind of, I, I suspect it will last for a while. Yeah. That is my sense of things. Um yeah, and so like I think occasionally with you with you we've recorded Sunday nights. Yeah. And I Sunday always... nights are just like my internet's just shit. I don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. I've never ever had a good Sunday night recording. 
We've huh. done. We've tried to do stairwells on it. It's been fucked up. We've tried to do uh, ghost divers on it. It's been fucked up. Um, Your upstairs neighbor is just like Sunday night is their torrent night. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, I also suspect, but I'm like I don't. So I have like a work PC that uh, they send updates to sometimes, but I don't know when they do that. Mm. I don't know if that's a thing. I usually try to turn it off though before I record, but I don't know. Anyway, well. That's neither here nor there. Episode episode three mm-hmm. of Around the Long Fire, which is the second episode of us talking about Volsunga Saga. Hmm. Uh, that one's really good. I'm glad. Yeah. Um, sometimes you're just, you know your fate, and you're just depressed about it, and so you're just like, might as well just march forward into my own oblivion. What else am I going to do? That's kind of like going to work every day, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually a thing that, that M says. is like, you read this and you're like, I wouldn't be like this guy. And then you're like, but I do just like know that I'm going <laughs> to die and go to like the same shitty job every day that I'm probably going to like work at until I retire. <laughs> you're right about one thing, master. <laughs> but maybe if I do it, I will get money, which is the same thing that that Sea Arthur is like. Maybe if I do this, I'll win a bunch of re- renown and money, mm-hmm. and so then I'll have that money before I die. Now, was <laughs> like when is this? When are like when is this saga set? Remind me. I mean, this one is a legendary saga, so ambiguous. Mm-hmm. Um, so where we're about to get to, uh. Atli is about to appear, who is a like the the character Atli you can tie to the the actual historical figure Attila the Hun. Okay. Um, now, when was Attila the Hun alive? Um, let me check because some of this stuff is like it's also just weird because there there's so much of like mixing um, unknown date, but circa uh, four oh six. Okay. But yeah, like 400s, 500s, like roughly around there. But like, no. there are people, there are people who are like in the saga at the exact same time as Atlee, who you can trace to other historical figures who are like a century apart. Mm-hmm. You know, because what's happening is that like these broader uh, actual events that happened of like different fights between different groups in the saga get reduced it down to like a squabbling within a family and stuff. So, so would um, you say that like 400s Iceland, let's say, or nobody was fucking there. <laughs> they had not discovered Iceland yet. 400s Nor- Norway? Yeah. Okay. Was that more of a like cash-based economy or was that more of a like like, do they have well, fiat the, currency then, or? Uh, the thing is, I I don't necessarily... Because the thing is, this being like a legendary saga, it was written... So the, the, the myths go back to at least like 1,000. Probably further, but there are like uh, stones that have been carved with runes that depict scenes from this. They go back to like the year 1,000. Hmm. 
So the story, as we have it now, took form at some point by then. It doesn't probably get written down until the, like, 1200s, which is when a bunch of saga writing started to happen in Iceland. The only extant copy that we have of this saga, though, is from about 1400. Okay. <clears throat> but that's probably based on a number of, like, written... yeah texts rather than it being before that would be oral history Mm -hmm. and like oral storytelling but basically like for sure by the like thousands to the the 1200s there was like a a cash base it it's based around elves i've explained this to you yeah yeah okay so there was like silver was the main current or just like the main standard rather than gold right um and so everything was like measured by silver, but then uh, developed homespun, which would be like wool from sheep that you spun and then made into a fabric. That fabric became really common as like a way to uh, understand silver because a lot of people were not necessarily always working in silver. Right. They talk about royalty having like silver bands and things. But one of the things that happened in Iceland is that you basically got a bunch of chieftaincies who had no hope of being king as like kingships, uh, like, you know, royal lines and like what territories kings owned continue to like, uh, condense into like smaller and smaller, like fewer and fewer kings in like Norway, Denmark, Sweden, those areas. Um, a bunch of these smaller chieftains are like, I don't want to be, just like beholden to some king. I want to essentially be my own king. Let's all go to Iceland and then let's set up this system of government where we all have like control over small territories. And then we have this like uh, system where we all come together and we like decide on laws and things. Okay. And so like this weird representative democracy develops, but like mostly based around just a bunch of people who want to be king and are are coming to an agreement where nobody is like going to people are less likely to overthrow. There's a whole downfall of this stuff that okay. you know at some point we can read like the sagas of the Sterlings on the the podcast and like that's just a full documentation of how like two families basically can consolidated all the Gothorth, which is like the the idea of like a chieftaincy. The, okay. the thing that gave you the right to like control over territory basically I condensed down to like two families. Um, anyway, you're getting very tired, so we can start the no, podcast. No, 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 you're misunderstanding me. I'm not, I'm not like, oh, I'm so bored of you talking. Yeah, I'm just like, I'm tired. We should probably get rolling. Yeah, but anyway, main currency silver, but a lot of it was actually reckoned in the form of L's of homes, uh, homespun, L's being like a measurement of right. length of cloth. Um, and so a lot of stuff would be, this many L's of homespun would be worth a cow, and they would do that instead of like silver. Mo me 
find you online you can find me at fox Momnia on twitter and co-host go listen to my other podcast ghost divers anime you heard me talk about zeta gundam uh probably not gonna talk about that on ghost divers because we're not recording again for a while but we are gonna talk about iron-blooded orphans so listen to that when that happens heck yeah um also the episode that went out i know i said this on many podcasts uh, but the Paranoia Agent episode, I think, is very good. I get into stuff about this, like, co- concept of overcoming modernity um, that I think, and, like, detoxifying culture that I think Paranoia Agent is deeply engaged with and is, like, deeply tied to fascistic movements in Japan um, in a way that I think Paranoia Agent has some very fast stuff in it. Mm-hmm. I think there's some stuff it does to contradict it or complicate it. Um 
but also doesn't have an alternative to it other than saying the cycle will continue and things will maybe incrementally get better.